Hello everyone, and welcome to this Nintendo Life. This is episode 37, and I am your ever-illustrious host, NBZ. Uh, and joining me this week, as always, we have Bali. Hello Bali, how are you doing? I'm good, NBZ. How are you? I'm excellent. Uh, but we're not going to continue the show just yet because we have someone else to introduce on our podcast this week. That is right. Uh, we said before that we were planning to have guests and we are delivering on that promise. Uh, we now welcome as our first guest onto the show, John from the Nintendo Show podcast. Hello, John. How are you doing today? Super fucking wonderful to be here. Uh, can, I, can, I, <laughs> can I swear? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. We are, we are yeah. marked as explicit on iTunes, we, we so absolutely. Excellent. Go ahead. Uh, so, yeah, John, you uh, you do a podcast about Nintendo as well, which is really great. So uh, how about you tell people a little bit about that? I Sure. I do a podcast available on iTunes called The Nintendo Show. It is, as the name would imply, an entirely Nintendo-focused podcast. We do follow a sort of different structure from a lot of other podcasts on the internet. We talk, we, we, deve- we devote each week in the month to a different sort of Nintendo-related topic. So on the first week of the month, we always talk about Pokemon. Uh, we, we do rankings. Right now we're doing a lot of nuzlocking, so we'll t- p- pick a particular game in the Pokemon series, and decide over the next three or four months we're going to Nuzlocke it, and then talk about our Nuzlocke as we play through. That's that's good, because a lot of my audience are big Pokemon fans. I used to do competitive Pokemon uh, on YouTube, and so I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in uh, you know Nuzlocke talk. That'd be uh, cool stuff. It really is a, a nice way to breathe more life into games you've played over and over again. What we used to do, uh, me and my co-host Wes, is we used to just play through gold and silver on the DS over and over again, but use a different team every time. And we were trying to play through the game um, enough times to where we could use all 250 Pokemon. And That's we, insane. That's we, crazy. <laughs> we we burnt out. Um, yeah, I can imagine why. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And then once once we burned out, we decided like let's just let's just fucking rank Pokemon. Let's just rank the fire types, and we'll get back to that later. Once we got through with our rankings, um, by by that point, our third member became a, a pretty regular uh, co-host, and he was already into Nuzlocke. And okay, let's let's try doing some Nuzlocke. So we, we've Nuzlocke uh, the third generation. We've Nuzlocke the fourth generation. Now we're in the middle of the fifth generation. So that's a really fun way of uh, getting a little bit more out of games that you've played over and over again. Really tense too. Like, when, yeah, when... and I, I've only Nuzlocked uh, one Pokemon game, and that was Blue, and I actually did it as a series on my uh, YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fun way of like you know getting more attached to them, and uh, mm-hmm. you know being saddened when they eventually inevitably die. Oh, it's uh, tragic. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, yeah, and what, and what are the other shows then? The the second week of the month, it's just a free for all. Any random game is up for discussion, old, new, what have you. Third week of the month is entirely Super Nintendo-based. We sort of semi-chronologically go through the Super Nintendo library as games were released about 21 years ago. So um, I think the, the next big one on our list is Mega Man Soccer, which will be fun. What a, wow, I've never even heard of that game before. Oh, Jeez. oh it's real. It's oh, real. Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't get any realer than that. Um, well. <laughs> oh, and uh, and Home Alone too. That's another one that's going to be on our agenda. Uh, these the these are quite obscure titles, I have to say. Yeah. There, there are times where I think we hate ourselves because we. Yeah, also... yeah, that, that does. Yeah, that does come to mind when you're talking about uh, games uh, like these. But uh, we, we also yes, movie tie-ins. Right. 
<laughs> we also talked about uh, Super Metroid recently, as well oh, as excellent. Captain America and the Avengers, which is such a pile of shit. That was a really fun discussion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And then uh, wrapping it up at the end of the month, we, uh, we do like a recap of news. We, do, uh, we talk about new releases and then kind of preview the next month's games that are coming out. And then that leads us all back into the next cycle the next month. Cool. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting format for the uh, kind of podcast uh, thing, and uh, yeah, it's I've listened to quite a few episodes, and oh, uh, you have a, a good style going, and it's uh, yeah, it's a good show. So I definitely recommend you guys go and check that out, and I'm sure a lot of you will enjoy the Pokemon stuff as well. So uh, go and listen to all that podcasting. There's lots of it. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess uh, Bally, before we jump in here, why don't you uh, give us the lay of the land? What are we going to be talking about today uh, on the show? Sure. So this show, we're just going to do two longer segments. Uh, We just thought that would be best um, with a guest. So we're going to run through, as usual, what we've been playing, all three of us. And then we're going to go on to a special look back at the, the DS's history, because this is a very important anniversary for the DS. It's the Uh, 10th anniversary of the European release. Yes, uh, and that's the one that's relevant to us, of course, being in the UK. Uh, It was released in March, or the end of March 2005. Um, So it is, uh, it's come around, and the DS is one of my favourite systems, and uh, we have a lot of memories of it, launch stories and such, so we will uh, be discussing it and uh, doing a bit of a longer retrospective, I guess. We did a retrospective on the Wii, uh, I think, uh, yeah, ago, no, we so. did. I can't remember what episode is a while ago, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for those of you wondering, uh, our thoughts on the Zelda delay and Nintendo Direct that happened, which obviously uh, we are not going to cover this week, you can head on over to my YouTube channel where there are lengthy discussions uh, that Bali and I had on both of those topics. Uh, so if you just search NBZ on YouTube, you'll find my YouTube channel and you'll find uh, 40 minutes on the Zelda delay and over an hour of discussion on the Nintendo Direct. So that stuff is available. You'll just have to go and look for it uh, elsewhere unfortunately but uh, we've done it don't worry we've talked that stuff to death Uh, all right so uh, let's kick things off with what we've been playing Uh, and I'm going to start this week Um, I have been playing uh, Ollie Ollie which kind of came to my attention recently due to the video game BAFTAs that happened in the UK I'm not sure if uh, you're aware of these John have you uh, seen the BAFTAs before or like the general BAFTAs yeah yeah I I watched the uh, Ricky Gervais series extras and that's when I was introduced to what the oh very good yeah no extras is a great series Um, but uh, in the UK they uh, they actually you know, acknowledge video games under the BAFTAs, which is pretty cool. Um, it's, or try to, at least. Or, yeah, they try to. <laughs> um, I th- I think, like, the presentation that they have is generally pretty great. Like, they, it's a very classy affair, and they pull it off well, but when it comes to, like, awards and stuff that deserves to win, I uh, have reservations about a lot of that. Um, you know, when Far Cry 3 wins Best Soundtrack in the year of Mario Kart, Smash Brothers, and Shovel Knight, you can quite frankly go shove that up your like come on are you are you real um but yeah ollie ollie came through and won best sports game which was weird to me that it beat out all these like kind of mainstream big titles uh this small indie game about skateboarding um so if you don't know what ollie ollie is it's essentially a side scrolling um i wouldn't call it endless runner but i would make it analogous to bit trip uh the bit trip series where it is a runner and a side scroller um and you're on a skateboard and uh, you basically go through grinding on rails doing tricks as you go and trying to pull off high 
scores. And, you know, when I first started it, it seemed pretty simple, you know, looking at videos and everything. I was like, yeah, I could probably pull this off. But when it gets down to the brass tacks of actually controlling the game, it's really complex and requires a level of nuance that I didn't com- completely understand before I went into it. Um, essentially, the way that it controls is you have to press the A button as soon as you hit the ground. And the way that you grind is like using the analog stick. So when you hit a grind rail to step on that, you have to use the analog stick. But when you hit the ground, you have to hit A. And because of this disconnect between these two different surfaces, when you start, it's really like confusing. You have no idea like what you're doing wrong. And it's kind of like a patting your head, rubbing your stomach situation with the controls. Um, but I do understand why they made that choice. And the purpose is when you're on the grind rails, after you use the analog stick, you can kind of flick it in different directions. And as you jump off of it, it will initiate different tricks. Uh, and so it's kind of a very elegant and easy way uh, of, you know, pulling off a trick system without having to press like button combinations out the ass. You, you're just like flicking the stick in different directions and it pulls uh, pulls them off. Um, and it's really satisfying. Like I was doing terribly and I wasn't really getting very far, um, but eventually it clicked. And when the, one of those games clicks, it's that sort of feeling that you want to go back to earlier levels and just like completely destroy them and nail every grind and nail every landing and just get perfects and perfects and uh, put the high scores up uh, and really yeah it's it's a very satisfying experience um, John have you uh, had any experience of Oli Oli are you interested in it because it is on the Wii U eShop uh, yeah I actually uh, downloaded it on the 3DS in, uh, in oh North- it's on the 3DS as well I didn't realize yeah in North America it's actually uh, cross by which I did not do Oh, right. I uh, completely forgot. They actually are another company who are enabling cross-buy, which is great. And I I hope a lot more people do that. But uh, why why didn't you get the cross-buy? Is it a situation where you have to buy it on Wii U first to get the 3DS? Uh, Laziness, really. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, I I just uh, never... I haven't looked at the process yet to to how it would end up on uh, the Wii U now that I have the 3DS version. And yeah, it's... it's, um, it's a pretty cool little game. My my own, only one real issue with it is when you're pressing that A button to stick your landing, either yeah. you, you stick it really well or you fail it completely. There's no timing on the opposite end of, of your landing to maybe you can recover a little bit. So when you have a combo going, like, like a 30 times combo going, if you yeah. don't stick that landing exactly perfectly, you just lost the whole thing. Right, and it's it's kind of the the issue where you have destroyed a stage. Like your combo is ridiculously high. I'm up to like seven hundred thousand points. If I stick the landing, I get seven hundred thousand points. If I don't, I get three hundred. And it's like this vast gap. And you'd think maybe they'd have an in between. I think like there are certain degrees to which the landing can be performed. Like you can get a good as opposed to like a perfect, which I think is blue instead of green, like the color indicates. Um, but if you completely screw it up, then like your skater kind of goes whirling and potentially you can recover it. But if there are like stairs beneath you, there is no way. You're out of luck, buddy. You're falling headfirst down those. Yeah, so. but you're never recovering that score. Uh, no, no. And, and really, but like you, you can get like the the okay um, on the front end, but then once like your your board has made contact with the ground, there's no recovering on the back end like that. And you know, it's it's one of those 
uh, throw your DS frustrating kind of moments if you're not sticking your landings exactly correctly. But uh, otherwise, it's really fun to pull off like those really long combos and, and do your rotations in the air to uh, build up your combos. It, it eases you into pulling together like these really long combos really well. The overall structure of the levels doesn't really change in a significant way from level to level. They just add more to it. And it doesn't take long to get through any particular level, a couple of minutes at most, and they just throw more obstacles, more things to grind on, more jumps to pull off in there uh, so that you can build up your score higher and higher. And then once those controls just kind of become muscle memory, you know, you're, you're getting the combos of six and 700,000. Yeah, it, it is really to do with that zen, I think. Like, you need to just go to this place where you are at one with the ollie ollie and the skateboarding just flows from you without even thinking uh, to some degree. Uh, and that feeling when you nail it is awesome. I think it's just so, so great. Um, and this is totally my kind of game. Um, it's weird because I've never been into kind of high scores and going and going back for them. But in Bitrip Runner, I was really motivated to do that because of the friend list integration. It was one of the first games on Wii U where they took the friends list and made it really meaningful, um, showing you the high scores that were there and that you could be. And it like motivated me to go back and do it. Um, although that isn't like a big thing for me with Ollie Ollie because I am playing it on Steam, so I don't have as robust uh, you know a friends list who are playing the same game as me. It's just the feeling of wanting to go back and do every challenge because each stage comes with a certain amount of challenges like pull off this certain trick or get a combo going for this long or grind on all the roofs of a certain area and I just, you know, I just kept going back to those to beat them because they were so much fun to pull off and do. Um, And did you unlock the pro stages? Did you go for any of those? Yeah, I think I'm up to the fourth section of stages and uh, okay. at, at least through the first three levels i've been going for for all five of the goals and unlocking the pro stages and i played a few of the pro stages but not too many of them yeah i mean i was really trying to go back and do that i got to the point where i completed uh, the first two worlds five starred everything and unlocked the pro levels and then when i got to the third world i remembered i really didn't like the third world that much it's this uh, ice based area and a lot of the time you're having to rely on the landing and not using your grinds because I felt like a lot uh, a lot of the other levels allowed you to kind of grind the whole way through the stage and not have to touch the ground once which is kind of the way I preferred to play the game uh, so I kind of gave up on that there but uh, certainly it gets very challenging towards the end you're in world four right so that's that's when it really starts to ramp up uh, ramp up and there were stages that I was spending 25 minutes on to beat because, like, it it does get very challenging, but um, certainly a satisfying feeling at the end. Um, And also, uh, they have a daily challenge, which uh, they refresh uh, all the time, uh, or every day, should I say, every 24 hours, uh, that you can go in and you only get one shot at it. You can practice it as much as you want, but you only get one shot at it. And uh, I did this while Bally was on Skype with me, practiced it a bunch, got really good, and then failed on my actual attempt. And Bally laughed at me and it wasn't very fun. So (laughs) there you go. Uh, So yeah. um, The The game sounds so similar to not similar but um a lot of the feelings that you have while playing it sounds similar to bit trip runner in the sense of that what you were saying about patting your head and rubbing your stomach which is a real sort of 
thing you have to push your brain into doing when playing Bitrip Runner. You, like like you were saying, MBZ, like you went back to Bitrip Runner and you just jumped straight into a level and you just weren't able to play it. I mean, yeah, because I just was... forgotten all the different moves and everything that you have to pull off. Like it's almost impossible to just jump into like world four of Bitrip and go because there are so many elements that they build up over time and teach you over time yeah. that if you go in and have forgotten them, you're like, well, I'm screwed. I can't beat this. Um, mm. So it's almost like you have to start from the beginning again. And I wouldn't say necessarily that's the case with Oli Oli uh, because just the core mechanic of learning to grind and landings is pretty it much it, all it you need. It doesn't build up as much. It's just no, it doesn't build up as much, but it's, it's really just getting it down and nailing that feeling um and uh yeah it's i i really enjoyed it i thought it was fantastic i put like seven or eight hours into it in the space of a couple of days without really realizing it um and uh that's kind of when games really get me when i'm just like sign of a good game (laughs) yeah time's gone by and i've not noticed and uh yeah it was good it was good so yeah that's uh ollie ollie and uh it's available on wii u and 3ds apparently which i i wasn't aware of but that's really cool uh so you can go and check that out i recommend it uh right so john uh what are we gonna be talking about with you next uh let's talk a little bit about elliot quest which sure. came out it came out on the wii u just a few weeks ago it is it's actually a game that they featured on a nintendo direct in one of their little indie game talks right yes uh, and it is. It, it looks like an 8-bit action platformer kind of game. It draws a lot of heavy influence from Zelda II Adventure of Link, except it's um, good. And... <laughs> wow. <laughs> Slamming it down. I, look, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I'm uh, Neither Bally or I are fans of Zelda 2, or indeed the original Legend of Zelda. Um, Ooh, like, all right. For, for, well, for me, it's, it's the fact that we didn't grow up with those games, and when it comes to NES titles, I find it very difficult to go back to them uh, in this day and age. You know, without the nostalgia factor, without the kind of knowledge that you had back then, it's pretty much impossible for me to enjoy those the only titles that i like from the nes era are the Mega Man games and i think those hold up the best probably over time um but i i guess like you're probably a fan of the original zelda but not so much the the second yeah let we, uh, let's let's fall down this rabbit hole for a second yeah sure um, sure the original legend of zelda i i can understand what you mean it's it's very uh, obtuse the way it's constructed because there are certain things that you just have to stumble upon and a lot of times the only way you can stumble upon them is if you're walking around burning down every bush that might right, be- I was going to bring up that that note is that that's the anecdote everyone just you know there's a hidden path in a random bush in a random square of this this giant world how the hell is anyone going to find that without Nintendo power that, like, that, that might be fun when you're five years old and playing right, exactly, a video game but the first time. time is precious these days uh-huh. so, you know so, so I can understand the uh, th- that that is not exactly accessible. But what uh, the original Legend of Zelda did, uh, and why it's an important game to me, is it sort of um, builds up your um, God, I don't know your 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 spider sense, as it were, for video games. Mm. So a, a lot of times I go I go through Legend of Zelda games, and I'll just kind of notice by the way a certain area is laid out or just a feeling I get that I need to, I'm going to walk over that tree and drop a bomb on it because I have a feeling something is there. And I think that that sort of sense goes back to the original Legend of Zelda and have to go around and try to bomb every wall to see if maybe something will open up. Um, And yet it's, it's definitely not 
an experience that is particularly modern, but I, I still think it's an important game to how I've learned to interact with video games. But, sure. Yeah. Do you think that a lot of the more recent Zeldas aren't very good at you know initiating that spider sense like you you described it, where they make they might make it a bit more obvious that you perhaps bomb a wall or slash at that bush or something? Do you think that they've kind of lost something that the original Legend of Zelda is far better at? I think that they've achieved an appropriate balance between, yeah, especially for modern day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that they it it never it's never too obtuse where you find something. But then there there are some still very clever things in there which still don't take you hours to figure out, which is a good thing. Yeah. So that's, that's good. Yeah. Back to uh, back to Elliot Quest. Absolutely. It is a eight bit style side scrolling action game. Um, it, it, it plays a bit like Kid Icarus because your main, your, your only method of attack is a bow and arrow. And the, the thing about the game that I guess bothers me the most is that the, the overworld is constructed so that you can enter these different levels. Uh, like Zelda two, you, you walk toward a forest um, a little exclamation point appears above your character scrolling around on the screen, and you can enter a level. And the level is laid out a lot like a, a Legend of Zelda dungeon where there's a map and there are different rooms that you uh, scroll onto. Those are all constructed very well. There's a good sense of exploration to them, a good sense of discovery because there's secrets hidden all over the place. Uh, but when you're in that overworld, it doesn't. The, the game doesn't do very well at guiding you about where you're supposed to do next. Now that by itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just is the game telling you, you know, look around, go everywhere, figure this out. The the element of the game that kind of makes that a little bit frustrating is that as you're going through the game, you gain power-ups by defeating bosses. Um, The the first one, just for example, is a tornado. Your character turns into a tornado for a, a limited amount of time, and when you beat that boss and gain that power-up, the game doesn't do anything to sort of guide you about what you're supposed to use that for. There were different things throughout the particular level where you gain that where you think, all right, maybe I'll I'll try being a tornado in this pile of leaves. And if there's a, a, a row of pile of leaves, you turn into that tornado, you jump into it, and it zips you along those leaves so that you can uh, move over bigger gaps. So you're thinking, all right, cool, this tornado... Is like a, it's like a zip line when I see leaves hanging in the air, um, but they don't do anything to sort of guide you to experimenting with that tornado in different ways. So there's a section of the game later on once you discover it where there is wind blowing up, and I went to that a bunch of times thinking like, hey, I don't have a power up that I need to get there. There was a feather that I bought in a shop like, hey, maybe this feather helps me jump or helps catch the wind or something like that. That feather did nothing except. Uh, introduce a game-breaking glitch, which they now have. Oh cat. dear! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the, the, sc- the screen goes black, and you're you're wandering around, and like there there's ghosts uh, of your sprite trailing behind you, and I'm thinking the whole time, is this supposed to happen? Is, <laughs> is this intentional? Is, Jeez, is this, like, uh... am I supposed to use this in a certain place to sort of like enter some sort of spirit world and and like access different areas by going like into this ghost form? I don't know. But then I, I saw on Meverse, like, no, this is definitely a glitch. 
So yeah. <laughs> haven't gone back and bought that thing yet, but because it's a, it's an item you buy in a shop, those seem to be just completely disposable. It doesn't seem like those items so far um, gain you particular abilities that you need to progress in the game. So, so it doesn't do the Zelda thing where as soon as you get an item, it puts a block in your way that forces you to use it and teaches you this is right. what you use this for, which... I guess that seems like a little more obtuse uh, and in keeping with older style of games, perhaps. Exactly. Ex- so. That's exactly what it does. And that in combination to not guiding you what part of the game you're supposed to go to next is a bad combination. Because you might go to a part of the, of the game where you have the correct power-up, but because you gained that power-up a while back and they haven't shown you what you're supposed to do with it in that section yet, you have no idea that you're supposed to use it. I mean, it's kind of neat that those power-ups have multiple uses, as you're saying, like, it blows the leaves, but it also, if you find a wind, then you can, you know, blow yourself up through it. I think the problem is, like, the obvious, making the relationship uh, connection between the two, and unless you're sitting there on a a section just trying every power-up you have, um, then you're not probably going to be able to get very far through it, so... And you know that... That sort of experimentation isn't encouraged because a lot of times these obstacles you're supposed to get around, if you use a power-up and fail to get around it, you die. Oh boy. So, yeah, that's not good. <laughs> and it, it, what's the respawning like? They, they just start you at the start of the dungeon or the room? or There are there are save points throughout the, the different dungeons and levels. And, you know, there, there are no lives, so they've ditched that completely archaic method. Thank God. Of... <laughs> I'm very pleased to hear so. If you listen to this podcast, you'll know that I rail constantly against uh, you know, Nintendo's continued inclusion of lives in games like New Super Mario Bros. U yeah. and you know, modern platformers where they have no place and are completely it's, you know, arbitrary. It's really silly. The only reason to collect a bunch of lives is so you can then make a po- post on Miiverse like, hey, look, I have 99 lives. There are no, there, there's no penalty for losing them all. So they no, mean nothing. Not. Yeah. By the way, side topic. How does it feel to be so wrong about Super Mario World? <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Bali not a big fan here. Bali not a big fan of <laughs> Super Mario World. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I've heard. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My relationship with 2D Mario is frosty. Mm, <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know. I yeah. I, I just I just find a lot of other 2D platformers a lot more fun and I don't really know perhaps what like my favorite 2D platformer platforming games at the moment are the two new Donkey Kong Country games um Tropical Freeze and Returns and I just feel like they they I, I don't know I just found world far it's far too tough and I'm I'm really not justifying why I dislike it um, in the way I described before, but it's just I feel like Donkey Kong is far more fresh and does does more that's new and unique, and it just, it's, it's just a, a bit a bit different, really. The Donkey Kong games are fantastic. Yeah, they are very very good. But back to back to Elliot Quest. So I don't I don't mean to say that you know this. This, the way the game is constructed here makes it not worth trying. I think this game is absolutely worth a shot. Uh, the, the way they treat deaths, um, you, you have the save points hidden throughout. There's no lives. And when you die, you respawn back at the save point. What you do is you learn, or sorry, you unlearn uh, a certain amount of your experience that you gain from defeating enemies. 
Oh god, that sucks. It's and also this kind of ties into a tweet that I just saw. Like it's it's like the idea of the Dark Souls games where you lose your souls for you know dying. Um, Johnny Metz uh, on RFN, who actually talked about this recently, uh, was talking about on Twitter how. Elliot Quest is like Dark Souls, but if Dark Souls didn't have the huge community around it to figure everything out, because it's seeming like there are like no guides to go to for any of this stuff to find out what to do or where to go, and that it's really obtuse uh, on that kind of level of difficulty. Um, so, so yeah. So the the hit that you take to your EXP isn't devastating but if you're experimenting with different powers over and over again and failing over and over again you can easily drop back down to the beginning of a level and when you when you level up you gain a point that you can assign to a stat for a lack of a better word but it doesn't like in an rpg sense improve the way you perform at certain things if you like assign um, a point to your agility stat um it fills up more like a skill tree and you don't necessarily move faster with your agility stat, but it allows you to shoot your arrows farther. Something okay. like that. And there, there are different ways to upgrade. You can upgrade your, your magic, which will, I guess, um, it, there, it, well, it, it does different things. It can either, depending on where you are in the skill tree, it can uh, allow the magic drops that uh, fall out of jars or out of enemies to refill your magic meter uh, more than they normally would. Um, it can make your, your spells cost less, that kind of thing. So, Elliot Quest is definitely not an easy game to progress in, but I feel like they, they do a really good job laying out the levels to guide you through the individual levels really well. It's when you get to the, the, the bigger macro structure of the game that the, the progression is a little bit harder. But once you once you establish some momentum, the the game... You're able to make progress more. It's when you get stuck in certain sections that it can become head-scratchingly difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's certainly something that I'm passively interested in. Like, I enjoy hearing people talk about it, but when it comes to the prospect of playing a game like that, it's just not in my wheelhouse. And uh, I don't know. It's A lot of things like the difficulty and, you know, just the side-scrolling nature of it put me off a little, but... Um, you know, it's there for people who, uh, you know, like those those sort of things. And certainly there are a lot of Zelda 2 fans who have not uh, been given the stuff that they want over the years. Because they want mad stuff. Yeah, for some reason. But um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting because no one really goes back to the well on Zelda 2. It's one of those weird outliers in video gaming history that no one has copied to any degree. I mean, you know, there may be good reason for that because people say that Zelda 2 isn't very good. Some people like it. Um, but it's certainly interesting to see like a more modern take on it. Um, so, there you go. Yeah, when you're, a, when you're a kid in art class, you don't copy, draw a, a pile of shit. You copy, draw a bowl of fruit. <laughs> well, yep. That is, uh, that's, certainly, that's certainly a good analogy. Absolutely. Alright, uh, how about we hop over to Bali then, because you have finished the end of a long journey. Oh boy, uh, I sunk about 40 hours into this game, um, and that is Fire Emblem 7. Um, yes. Also known as Rekka no Ken, if you are to use the Japanese title, because uh, when this came out in the West, it was simply called Fire Emblem, because it was the first Fire Emblem we got here, so... There you go. Although we just hmm. call it Fire Emblem Seven. Knowledge. I know. I'm, look, I I know a lot about Fire Emblem, and I will uh, I will let that be shouted from the rooftops. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, I 
I've already talked about this a bit on the the show back when I was about 17 hours into the game and oh boy it ramps up a lot at the end like it, it, it it's a tough game um the the final boss or multiple final bosses were I found really tough um and I think without save states I'd find this game incredibly um frustrating um because i think the interesting thing about the way that you approach fire emblem 7 is that you didn't take advantage of any of the arenas despite the fact that you could have taken advantage of them with save states uh and you basically leveled up your characters to maybe like 14 or 15 before promoting them when i go through this game i generally will never upgrade any of my characters until they hit 20 to maximize their potential to make sure their stats are as high as they can be and then you know by the end of the game I've grinded them up so much and gone through arenas so much that they are at like 20 or so, but at level 20, which has been progressed the full way through. And I think maybe the issue that you were bumping up against is that your characters just weren't powerful enough to finish yeah. it off. And that's um, why they give you like a crutch to lean on with Athos at the end, which yeah. you know some players will need. Otherwise, the game becomes very difficult. And I was a really big fan of units that actually weren't particularly powerful. So I really liked uh, Wyvern, 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 Wyvern Riders, Wyvern, yeah, Wyvern Riders and Pegasus Knights. Um, I liked uh, Cavaliers, um, things like that. So uh, Thieves, and I absolutely loved the magic users. I thought I, I really like linking those up with Pegasus Knights, basically. So I never really had a knight or a really sort of bulky tankish unit who I could use as sort of like a roadblock who was both really good defensively and offensively. Yeah, and Um, I kept telling you as well about Dart and how he was a great unit because he eventually became a Berserker, which is one of the best classes in that game. Um, mm. So he would have been very useful at the end. And obviously, yeah, having a general is always a good thing. Uh, Those are one of the best units in the game. So, But, um, I mean, initially... I always had in my mind that Advance Wars and Fire Emblem are almost uh, two sides of the same... What's the analogy I'm going for? <laughs> two sides of the same coin, exactly. Um, but the problem... No, it's not a problem. I think this is a really positive um, difference, is that Fire Emblem completely changes later on in the game, in my opinion. I think Advance Wars, um, they introduce new elements, but the... the the structure of the game doesn't change. Whereas I think that by the end of Fire Emblem, you're playing the game in a completely different way as you were at the start of the game. And that's something I really loved. And that's something that Fire Emblem has that Advance Wars doesn't at all, is a sense of epic scale. Um, You're starting with nothing. And I think that's maybe the RPG elements in Fire Emblem that help it do that. Because you're starting the game with nothing. You've got a couple of characters. And then by the end of the game, it's completely changed. You've got about 40 characters. It's almost like your own mini army. And it does kind of lend to that sense of how this world is structured. That you are leading your own mini army against this great evil. And um, it's reflected in the mechanics because you have so many characters at your disposal. And every member of that army has the whole backstory that you 
find out bits here and there. Uh, they have relationships with the other members of your your team, and it's just so interesting. Like it's a good story, and the way that it's told is good. The writing is really good. Um, like a lot of video games have terrible writing and things like that, but. Fire Emblem 7 is incredibly strong um, from a narrative point of view and it's just that combination of, it's a very long game, like I said I spent 40 hours, so the combination of watching your characters grow seeing the relationships happen see the story play out um, it was just all together a really, really positive experience, I like it was tough to get into at the start but um, as I've said before about Fire Emblem 7, I think that it's 10 chapters at the start of the game that are basically teaching you how everything works are done incredibly well um, and that's something that Sacred Stones doesn't have like I've said before and it's something I really needed because it sets you up for those next 20 chapters so well um, that by the end of the game you've really you've learned an awful lot um, definitely and it's yeah. like I said it's that sense of epic scale that I really loved about it that's good. It's your first Fire Emblem game you've beaten under your belt, and I'm kind of really happy that it was this game, because this was the game that so many people got introduced to the series with when it came over back in, what, 2003 or whatever it was. Um, I'm interested, John, have you played Fire Emblem before? Do you, have you played this game in particular? Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Oh, great. I was uh, introduced to this game back in Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door. There's a random NPC that's like, oh, I'm playing Fire Emblem on my GBA. You should try Wait, it Wait, really? Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, sure, random Koopa in Paper Mario Thousand Year Door. I'll try Fire Emblem. And <laughs> I ended up liking it more than Paper Mario. Um, but, uh, yeah, Fire Emblem, it's, it's a series that I got into with that, that GBA installment and been following it and buying the games on day one ever since. Yeah, and uh, very exciting news about the new one coming up. Pot- potentially very controversial, uh, but um, certainly looking forward to that. And if reports are correct, and you know what's been said, that potentially these two campaigns are going to be the size of Awakening each. Uh, that's essentially two new Fire Emblem games, not to mention a third DLC one, which could be as big as those as well. So three new Fire Emblem games all at once. I mean, the the controversy. I, I, as you you say, I assume you mean the uh, idea that in Japan you're having to buy both versions. Right, two separate versions and the way that that works. We still have no idea how it's going to shape up in the West uh, because clearly, I mean, in Japan they do very weird things. Like, for example, the online for Monster Hunter on Wii in Japan you had to pay for. Like, that was a subscription in Japan. Obviously, that shit isn't going to fly over here. No way that that's going to fly over here. Um, and so it wasn't implemented. You just had the free online as always on the Wii uh, with Monster Hunter. So I feel like maybe it's one of those situations where they they know that they can milk Japan for this stuff because they will buy it regardless. When it comes over here, I think it would probably be unwise to do the same thing, but we'll see. They they may go the Pokemon route and think, "Hey, we can actually do it over in this territory too." But Yeah, I mean, I it's know. from from the Nintendo Direct, I think the impl- implication was that in North America and in, in the West in general, it will be just uh, the the one package. That was uh, the sense that I got, and, and really, it sucks that they're having to pay extra for you know the the whole game in Japan. But it's it's hard to muster a whole lot of sympathy for Japanese gamers who get these things so much sooner. <laughs> right, it's coming out in June or yeah. something. It's ridiculous. You're, so. you're mad about? It? Fuck you! Fuck you if you're yeah. mad about it because I will <laughs> I will pay eighty dollars to have it right now. I would yeah. do it. 
Absolutely. I hope Nintendo's not listening. Well, <laughs> they will. But and, if uh, they are, remember to change those live systems in your games because that's something that we were discussing before. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get rid of lives in Mario. God yeah. damn it. Remember that. All right, uh, so we're going to go around for another round here. We each have another game to talk about. Uh, and I am going to go now with a another long journey that's come to an end, but one that I haven't talked about on the podcast yet. Um, so back in January, I decided to start out on my journey through Persona 4 Golden. Uh, this is a game that came out originally on the PS2, the original Persona 4 back in 2008, and is pretty much critically acclaimed by everyone as one of the best JRPGs in the last decade, if not the best. Um, and I would had a lot of people talk about it, people like Greg Miller, uh, Vigien, and now of Kind of Funny, um, and just... It got so much praise that I couldn't ignore it at this point. It was like, you know, I've kind of built myself up through JRPGs, and I think that this was one that I enjoy. And so I dived in and got it on Vita in December in a sale. And two and a half months later, Persona 4 Golden is potentially one of my favorite games I've ever played, uh, if not my favorite JRPG ever. It's amazing. Um, And there are many reasons for that. There's... uh, the whole idea behind it is that you're going to a high school in Japan and it's set in a very kind of remote region. You're out in kind of the countryside, so there's not much to do. So you spend your time like hanging out with your friends and like going to school and uh, buying stuff at supermarkets, going to the movies, that kind of stuff. But it's interspersed with this um, other world that you go into, which is located inside the TV. And when you go there, it becomes, you know, your traditional JRPG. You're going through dungeons, you're fighting enemies, and you're using what are called personas, which are, I don't know, I kind of liken it to Pokemon in a sense. They're kind of creatures that you call to fight for you. Um, and, you, you know, you're going through standard turn-based battles. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the dungeon crawling stuff was... I knew from the outset going in that I wasn't going to enjoy that as much as the social element and the kind of, you know, the narrative and the story and the characters. So I decided to play the game on easy. And what that meant was I never had to grind throughout the whole game. It was a JRPG without grinding, which honestly, grinding can be cool sometimes because you get that that feeling of leveling up and getting stronger, uh, you know, by, you know, knocking your head against the wall. But when it came to this game, I decided, no, play on easy, enjoy the story, enjoy the characters. And I was so glad, so, so glad I did that because it provided me ample challenge still as someone who was a newcomer and didn't really know the systems, but also meant that I wasn't spending all my time just running through these dungeons. And honestly, the dungeons aren't super inspired. They're kind of randomly generated and they're hallways um, and... They are based on the themes of of certain things, but uh, they're not kind of the meat of the game. The meat of the game really comes in those character interactions, and quite frankly, like some of these characters in Persona are some of my favorite in any video game, and I feel like I connected to them more than I have any other characters before. Um, It's just one of those really strange feelings, uh, and it's kind of hard to describe, but the game just, I don't know, it just initiates that idea of... um, you know, building up these links, these social links as they call them, um, and finding out more about their characters and their problems and their histories. And it's kind of very fascinating that it does this almost social commentary thing where, you know, people will have problems such as, you know, being a single parent or uh, dealing with, you know, issues of transgender and dealing with latent homosexuality and just, you know, 
problems, real problems in the real world that people have to deal with in the modern era. And I don't think many games kind of approach those subjects at all. Like, not whatsoever. And if they do, they kind of screw it up and do it ham-fistedly. What about Gears of War? I mean... Uh, obviously, you know, they, they, uh, they do a great job. Yeah, they're, they're on <laughs> no. the cutting edge of them social issues. Right, right. But, like, it's, it's kind of crazy that this game that came out in 2008 on the PS2 is doing such a good job of engaging with that stuff when so many other games kind of flub it and, and don't even approach uh, talking about them. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a special... Uh, special game. Have you played a Persona game before, John? Have you had a Shin Megami Tensei experience? Um, I have played a Shin Megami Tensei game, but never a Persona one. I actually have a copy of Persona 3 sitting on my Sony PlayStation shelf right above my head that I bought several months back on a whim because some guy was selling that and like an art book for it on, on Amazon for real cheap for like 15 bucks. So I was like, yeah, why not? And it has not been put into my PS2 yet. Well, I, I think that most people would probably recommend you play Persona 3 before Persona 4. Um, I've heard things such as, you know, going back to Persona 3 after you've played the sequel will make it much harder. Uh, there are certain things that they change in, um, you know, that game that are improvements um, that you would kind of be feeling at a loss without if you did it in the reverse. Um, I do kind of plan to play Persona 3 at some point, but um, I'm much more excited about the upcoming Persona 5. Uh, And now, like, having played through this game, Persona 5 is easily one of my most anticipated titles uh, coming in the future. And, like, one of the main reasons I want to buy a PS4, quite honestly, because if it came out on PC, I wouldn't even have a reason. But, you know, they're doing that console stuff. Um... I must say that while you were playing this game, MBZ, you had some pretty hilarious tweets because they were sort of talking about <laughs> they were talking about the school life, right? Yeah, but obviously a tweet is so short that you can't say in Persona this. Well, happened. I could have done so like hashtag Persona yeah. Golden, but people knew I was playing it, so yeah, I guess I kind so, of gave, gave it was that very context. funny. It was very funny, right? Because I'm like, oh yeah, I built built up this social link with this girl, so now I can date her, and then like, yeah. and then I ended up I ended up <laughs> dating three girls out of uh, all of them, and the game generally. T- tells you like you're already in a relationship yeah. are you sure you want to do this i'm like Fuck, i don't care yeah i'm gonna do another relationship it, Who gives it reminds shit? it reminds me of when i was younger and me and my friend we'd always play harvest moon on the game boy advance and friends of mineral town absolutely loved it and we'd be in the back of our of the car on the lift to school talking about it um saying oh I really need to get a double bed so that I can have a wife. Uh, <laughs> this kind of thing. And, and you're like remember, 11 years old. Yeah, exactly. And our mums found it the most hilarious thing they'd ever seen. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that stuff is really funny. And one of the biggest things that I love about Persona is how gripping the narrative is and how much voice acting the game has. It's probably the most voice acting I've ever heard in any game in my history of playing them. It's kind of crazy that this 2008 PS2 game is, like, it's pushing boundaries that not many others did. And it's not bad voice acting either. It's really good. They have uh, Troy Baker, who obviously is now well-known for being the voice of everyone and everything. He's one of the characters. Uh, And generally, like, all the characters are really well-voiced, really well-acted, and it 
plays a big part in you engaging with them. You know, like, I love these kind of visual novel-style games, uh, you know, stuff like Phoenix Wright, and a lot of that doesn't have voice acting in. They did in the new one, Leighton versus Wright, they had quite a bit, but there are a lot of portions when they don't, and I feel like more of a disconnect from the characters without it. It's just that element that brings you far more into the world and, like, caring about these characters. Um, so that was a really big thing for me, but... Yeah, overall, it's it's fantastic, and, you know, there are many different endings that you can potentially end up with, some which are really sad and you would never want them, so I used a guide at the end to make sure, like, I got through this part and got to the true oh, ending right. and got to the real final boss, and the final ending was, like, really emotional and really good. Um, you can YouTube the rest. Yeah, you can, yeah, exactly. I can have a look and see the terrible things that befell everyone uh, if the world wasn't saved. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's pretty phenomenal phenomenal uh persona 4 golden is amazing and i would say if you own a vita and don't own this game what the hell are you doing with your life go the hell out and buy it yeah, what the hell are you PSN. doing with your vita yeah gee what else are you gonna do <laughs> play uncharted is over in 10 hours come on let's play some other games uh persona 4 golden highly recommended it took me about 56 hours 56 and a half um and then well you can actually do a new game plus where you jump back into it with a lot of your stats uh intact so there are certain things like um uh, expression diligence courage understanding and knowledge which are like things that uh, if you have high knowledge you'll do really well in exams if you have good understanding you'll be able to you know talk to people about their feelings if you have courage then you know you can basically ask a girl out or something like that and when you start the game these are all zero but when you do new game plus you have them all basically maxed out so you can pick some options in the early game that were impossible on the first time through which i think is a neat touch and uh certainly lends the replayability so i don't know i might uh i might jump back into it again but i I don't know i have a real hankering now to play another persona game because i loved it so much um uh, it's it's i've got the bug so i recommend it um absolutely all right well uh there is my uh just uh praise fest over how about we jump over to john for uh another potential praise fest uh, uh with this game you've been playing oh indeed i i've been playing metroid prime 3 corruption on the wii u i suppose virtual console however however they want to brand the trilogy game that they brought over from, from yeah, the, wii. The, the wii virtual console but it's not really because there are no save states and it basically just boots into wii mode without telling you that it's very hush hush they don't you know they don't bring up the menu they just go in there stealthily uh but yes it is available for people now so so there you have it and um guys this this might be the best metroid game it might be. Ooh, wow, that's a very controversial uh, statement. <laughs> I I played through in January. I played through Metroid Prime when it uh, after it came out on uh, on the Wii U, and modern masterpiece, phenomenal game, changed the landscape of what people could expect out of a first person game, and introduced all these adventure and exploration type elements. Uh, other games probably wouldn't exist without Metroid Prime. Metroid Prime Three not only carries a lot of that over, but it also alters uh, the sort of expectations you can have for a Metroid game. The The sort of expectation for of a Metroid game where you lose all your powers and then sol- solely regain them is gone in this game. Instead of stripping you of your powers uh, after... They, they have the perfect opportunity to do it once you get corrupted by Phazon. They can say, oh, and by the way, you destroyed all your other suit powers, go find more. 
Um, your all of your powers are intact, and instead you're going throughout this world and finding different stuff. So they come up with different ways of altering your progression and guiding you the, the way you're supposed to move throughout the game. And a big part of that is your ship. Your ship becomes a, a, a sort of useful tool in your adventuring for the first time. And just the way they handle your, your upgrades, how they alter the way that you... Um, alter your expectations for the order that you're that you're getting your upgrades. Uh, for example, one of the last things that you're usually getting in a Metroid game is your grapple beam, the thing the things that allow you to to swing on the the targets and over longer gaps. And in in this game, it's one of the first things that you get. So they take a really different approach to how they're constructing the levels because they're changing the way your uh, upgrades are coming at you. One of the last things that you get in Metroid Prime 3 is your spider ball, which is one of the first things that you get in Prime. And in Prime, it's it's a way of keeping you uh, from accessing certain parts of the game you're not supposed to access yet. They do that a little bit with the spider ball in Prime 3, but the spider ball is mostly used for your power-up hunt, which is a really fun part of the game because they actually tell you what rooms the power-ups are in once you launch the satellites from the particular room in Skytown. Um, and they, they set up these spider ball tracks in some really elegant ways that they hadn't done before in a Metroid game. So, so do they do a lot of puzzle stuff with that? Because I think like when Bally talked about Metroid Prime last year, he was really enamored with what they did yeah. with the Morph Ball and the spider tracks. Is, is that returning? Yeah, they do a lot of puzzle stuff with it, but the, the puzzle stuff isn't meant to like get to the next section that you're supposed to, to do. The puzzle part are these really elaborate setups just to like gain a, a missile upgrade, and they're really fun to do. And there's uh, there's different um, moves you have to execute when you're using your spider ball. You like have to drop a bomb to skip over a section of track that's gone missing. You have to use your boost to launch yourself from one side of the track to a parallel side of the track. So they do some some different things with the the spider ball, which aren't even necessary for the games. Like, hey, this would be fun. Uh, you want an energy tank? Go run along this track for a couple minutes. And it, it's it's really enjoyable to just move throughout the game and hunt down these power ups. A big part of that is because they tell you where the power ups are, so you're not just trying to go through every room and just blast away every wall that you see in order to find everything. Um, there's an active power-up tracker if you are interested in, in collecting all the power-ups just on like your your main sub-menu screen. It'll tell you you have uh, 75 out of the 100 pickups. They, they don't tell you how many scans that you've gotten, but there there is like a section of your log where you can see like how many enemies you scan and how many enemies you can scan if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, I... trying to scan every enemy in the Metro Prime games is one of those challenges that I don't think many people are up to the task of. Yeah, we did, we did have a listener tweet us this week saying that they were in the process of getting all the scans in Metroid Prime 1. Yeah, that's a challenge. That certainly yeah. is. Um, now, John, I wanted to ask you about uh, some of the motion stuff in Metro Prime. Sure. Because as I understand, it was a very early Wii game. Um, and at that time, Nintendo were kind of shoving motion stuff into every game that they had. I remember a demo at E3 where they like, used the nunchuck to open a door and like uh, had you like swinging that thing about. Do they do too much gimmicky stuff in Metro Prime 3 or is it all very contextual? Does it work uh, for, the, for the game and how it, how it runs? The only motion that you'll have to do in the heat of combat is with the nunchuck. And 
I guess, ironically, if you'll allow me to use that word incorrectly. Um, sure. <laughs> the nunchuck is uh, the most responsive part of the motion controls. Um, so, so you're using the nunchuck for your grapple beam. Uh, you kind of fling it forward to grapple onto a target, and then you yank it back uh, to like pull bits of armor and things away from enemies. And that works really well. That's really cool. That's like a yeah. kind of an element of changing up the combat system, mm-hmm. right? Is like de-armoring. It's sort of a similar thing in like Twilight Princess, although obviously not as complex in that game where you use the hook shot to Grapple, take yeah. the, the shields off those running uh, charging enemies. Yep. And that kind I of remember stuff. that being a real thing that they were promoting a lot when the Wii first came out with the trailer um, for Metroid Prime 3. It was like you saw the guy with the Wiimote and Nunchuck forces nunchuck forward and then pull back and then it showed the screen ripping a shield away almost could have been a fishing game to some extent (laughs) (laughs) pushing forward and yanking back the uh the motions that don't work particularly well are the ones where you're just opening a door and or, or something to that extent just accessing another another room in the game where it's asking you to um, like thrust the Wii remote forward and then pull the Wii remote back. That if you, you kind of have to be slow with it. Like you have to thrust forward, wait for a second, and after it's completed, like showing you the text, pull it back, wait for another second, and then do it again. Otherwise, you're like extending your arm back further than it's supposed to go just to try to get the goddamn energy cell out of the spaceship or what <laughs> what have you. Um, that kind of stuff is frustrating, but it's such a small part of the game that it, it doesn't it doesn't impact the experience a whole lot. So the the motion controls, the the bad ones are not intrusive and the good ones actually add a whole lot to the combat. Alright, that's that's good to know. Um like it's it's just one of those things that I thought would be maybe something that plagued it because of the time period. You know, it was it was just uh, I don't know at E3 in general, like they were doing a lot of that stuff. But it's it's good to know that it's it makes sense uh, within the game. Yeah, there's you know, there's I, no there's no like shake the Wii mote to win. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, the <laughs> the controls were definitely set up with the Wii remote in mind. Um, I talked a, a little bit about this before. Um, on, a, on a show that I did, um, where when, you, when you're playing Metroid Prime, the trilogy edition, the amount of power-ups that you can switch to and visors that you can switch to is a little bit overwhelming for the Wii Remote. It's it's not designed to have that many buttons, and it tries right. to use... Very limited inputs that you can actually put in on that thing, so... And, and it tries to use um, the infrared sensor and like a, a button combination to like like in Twilight Princess, bring up uh, your wheel of power ups. But when oh, you're okay. when you're in the heat of battle and you're having to use like your X-ray visor in tandem with your ice gun, you're having to like switch these different weapons. Whereas on the GameCube, it's a flick of a couple of, of like your D-pad and your C-stick, and you're there. Whereas in the the uh, Prime version, God, I just the trilogy version, goddamn right, trilogy, yeah. Um, you're you're having to sort of enter this sub menu each time while everything is still going on. Switch your visor, switch your gun, and God help you if you accidentally pick the wrong visor, because then you're like looking around. You've lost the enemy. You're like oh, I was supposed to use thermal. I used X-ray. Now he's nowhere to be found. And yeah, um, the the controls for Prime One on the trilogy setup were not ideal and it was it's a little bit more refined for Prime 3 because it was actually designed for that Wii Remote right, setup. Right, it was for the system so they had to make sure that it, it worked as best as it could. Um, I was also interested because I, 
I feel like a lot of people talk about Metro Prime 3 as being very different from the other two and that it seemingly was more linear. Um, did that actually, you know, is, is that the case? Is is it more linear and does that detract at all, do you think, from the kind of Metroid origins? Well, you know, I, I would probably argue that most Metroid games are fairly linear because there is a set path and they block them off with different power-ups that you're supposed to get. So there's... Right, I mean, unless you're sequence breaking and right. being able to go past stuff, which, funnily enough, my first time playing through Super Metroid, I sequence broke Super Metroid because I couldn't get past a part and did some wall jumps and Oh, nice. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah. There so, you go. Uh, yeah. Um, but as, as far as it being more linear in the way that, you know, maybe, but I think it strikes a good balance between between being linear and having good sense of exploration to it. And a lot of that is also because of the power-up hunt that you can go on. There's, there's a lot of depth to the areas that you're going into and a lot of side stuff that you can do that's not necessary to complete the game. It's also a bit more action-heavy. Than other yeah, Metroid yeah, games. I definitely heard that that it was it was focusing on the combat quite a bit. So yeah, um, you know, this is it's not like uh, we're not talking like Halo levels of combat sure, or anything sure. like that, but um, it, it definitely feels like it's the most balanced of the Prime games in terms of having uh, heavy action sets and having exploration, um, and and it it doesn't have the same sort of atmosphere as in Prime One. Um, Prime 1 was, was very brooding, very lonely. There's a sense of danger throughout it. And there, there are sections of Prime 3 where you do have those sections of danger, particularly when you get to the, the last general area that you're supposed to go to. Um, but it was prevalent throughout all of Prime. And part of, the, I think, the reason that Prime 3 doesn't have that same uh, sense of tension is because there are other people. There are galactic... Right, it had voice acting, didn't mm-hmm. it, with yeah. the other characters? So yeah. that was kind of the, the, the pre-warning to Other M, as it were, uh, with, with all of that happening. So Other M is great when you play it on mute. Uh, um, <laughs> we play on mute, yeah, sure. But, but yeah, they're, they're like galactic federation troops. Like They take a, a larger role into the narrative of the game. You don't see them a whole lot during actual gameplay, but there are different sections where they, where they come in and, and take part in the action. There are different hunters that you interact with a couple of times during the game. So you're definitely not in on a desolate planet. You're actually going from planet to planet, and there are other life forms on that planet that aren't just like your normal monster grunts. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, it's, it's something that I'm going to get to eventually. I did buy the Prime Trilogy on Wii U, and I've never actually played any of them. Uh, Tell but, them to uh, play it, John. But, Tell them to uh, play but it. I, 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 intend, I intend this year to, to get through those. I know Bally, uh, as well, is going to play through 2 and 3. Uh, so that's oh, yeah, good to, yeah. good to get, good to get a primer that on that game from you. So <laughs> there you go. 2 is an experience. Um, you probably noticed that I didn't mention 2 a whole lot in my comparisons. 2 is very different because yeah. one of the really fun things about Metroid games is that sense of exploration. And almost immediately when you start playing 2, there's like, hey, there's this world, and there's Dark World. There's this whole other place uh, that's the, the other side of the coin, to go back to that metaphor, um, of this world. Um but you can't move around in it because if you step out of the light, you start losing health. So remember all that yep. exploration you loved about Metroid? You can't do it yet. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that really puts me off that game. I just hate that feeling of being helpless and losing health for just like being in an area. And oh, it's it's just it's too much. It's too much stress for me uh, to some point where I'm just like I can't. 
I can't deal with that. So I think I, I, I'm likely to skip over two when I play through really? these games. Yeah, not to uh, not to uh, rain on the Metroid Two parade too much more. But there's also ammo. You have a limited amount of ammunition for your right gun for upgrades. the light and dark beams. Oh, that's oh, horrible. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, uh, that is a good discussion there on, on Metro Prime 3, and hopefully we'll hear more about it in the future when Bally does uh, get around to playing it. But for now, Bally has started out a brand new adventure, and going from one large RPG-ish game to another, what are you playing now, Bally? What, what have we got coming up? If there's one thing this podcast has definitely brought out in me, and I think yourself as well, Mbz, to some degree, is that we're trying new experiences we're doing game we're trying out games and genres that we've never experienced before um and i have never ever experienced anything like um xenoblade chronicles uh 3d um you've played I, rpgs before but when we say hardly, that we're talking hardly, a, we're to, no yeah. we're talking about pokemon right that's the, yeah, exactly. the one thing and... i wouldn't necessarily call pokemon a traditional RPG. I mean, it is in many ways, yeah. but but like compared to your Final Fantasies, your Dragon Quests, and and those kind of things, uh, not yeah, quite the and same. Like, I was really concerned because I'd been. This was obviously your favorite game that you uh, completed last year, MBZ. And yeah, I was really concerned that I just wouldn't get it. That I I'd, I'd play about ten hours or so, and then be like, you know what? It's just not clicking. Um, it's too complicated. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I, I'm not enjoying it, and I ha- all those concerns are completely irrelevant now because I am eight hours into the game, and I feel r- pretty knowledgeable about everything that it's thrown at me so far. And I must admit that I've obviously spoken with you, MBZ, about lots of. Uh, nuanced little things and I've also watched a few videos online um, of uh, Chugga Conroy's LP of the game just to help out with some things but by and large I think the game is very good at teaching you um, gradually how all the intricate parts of the game work many many systems there to learn a lot of yeah there's a there's a lot of systems and but they they don't shove it all at you at once i think and it's just really well done um from the start of the game and i mean the the best bits i'm finding are the story and the cutscenes, um the music obviously and then just the the level and art design it just i've just gotten to gower plain which is obviously the famous um expansive hub i guess is, is it a hub Can well uh hub? i, I wouldn't some, necessarily call it, it a it's hub a, but it's yeah. the first giant area where you kind yeah. of you think like colony nine is this big place and then you hit gower plains and you realize everything i knew was a lie because <laughs> jesus uh, yeah, this game has and scope and scope is like the key word when it comes to xenoblade nothing just is like does small. that it's a huge so scale. well it does it so well and i'm really it's a really good story really really impressive and full voice acted cutscenes that i'm obviously not used to very often as well which are really nice really nice british actors always good to hear a british accent <laughs> yeah on the note of that, I'm interested what you thought of that, John, as generally games come out and have American voice actors. What was it like playing through Xenoblade and having a British voice cast? Did it put you off at all, or, or was it a nice, fresh change? Or did you go for j- the Japanese voices? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, I actually played with uh, the British voice from, from Zara to Finish, and I, I think it, it lended a sort of, um, I don't know, authority to what they were saying. 
Um, things like it, it was much easier just to go along with how batshit nuts everything gets in that game hmm. with with the British voice acting because as someone who doesn't uh, speak with a whole lot of British people on a regular basis. Um, well, we're changing that. We're changing that. <laughs> yes, which, which is a good thing. Um, I need, I need to find the right uh, the right word. It's, it's does it ground it perhaps? No, it actually um, that that's a good way of putting it because it's actually the opposite of that. It makes it oh. feel like something that's alternate, like an alternate reality. Right, right. Which is which is a good thing because if there was something further grounding that game, uh, that that game is at its best when it's just. Uh, Totally out there, far out, and crazy and wacky. Which things, you know, it, Bally? If you think the the story is great so far, god damn! Right, god that is that damn. is the point that I make a uh, a lot. Is one of the things which pushed me through finishing Xenoblade is the story. It just it ramps up to this thing that just gets so ridiculous and over the top that you're just wondering like how how is this happening right now on my screen this is just this is insanity but i love it and i did love it so so it was a good, good it's thing. one of the, the, the one of the things the game does really really well is it just builds on itself and the, the story is just one aspect of that but like uh, exploring all the different regions and finding different landmarks and doing side quests things and and the the battle system to a certain extent uh, when you start doing chain attacks and combos um, everything they, they do a good job of starting small and getting huge and especially with the story things get fucking huge <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much um, and yeah and I do want to emphasize that that aspect of getting experience and getting rewarded for exploring the game and one of my obsessions in these styles of games is to unlock the whole map and to like map everything out and fill in every block i spent like maybe two hours in this area later on which is like this giant sea uh basically swimming around the whole thing and mapping the map out and i didn't really achieve anything but i had that sense of satisfaction and realization that this game is just stupidly large oh um, did dumb so. shit I, I feel bad for saying something um uh no if, if it's spoilery then yeah let's let's hold off no let's, no not uh, uh, not a spoiler it's just about the the map filling in um because uh-huh. i started doing the same thing in colony and i was just swimming around swimming around the map just to fill everything yeah. in um once you discover all of the landmarks the entire map fills in wow really yeah <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> Wow, <laughs> jeez, my I that's, your mind is blown. Then I I could have beat Xenoblade in seventy hours, not eighty. Well, <laughs> oh, well, wow. wow. Okay, that's a revelation. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, I don't regret it. Honestly, I don't regret it. I I enjoyed my time exploring and getting that that scope. Uh, I could so. just see Ryan swimming around the entire Aerith yeah. Sea. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and I should also add. The, some of the 3DS features so um, obviously I'm playing this on the new 3DS because that's the only place you can play this version and it's really nice having the analog uh, the C-stick nub for a camera it's cu- it's quite delayed Like it doesn't feel like a C-stick would it's quite delayed but it, it works nicely um, and other 3DS features like graphically the 3 the 3D is not over it's not a huge sense of depth but there's still 
a distinct amount of depth that they go for with the 3D, which does make everything look a bit better, because obviously um, it doesn't look as nice as the Wii version, but for a handheld, it looks really great, if that makes sense. And the art, because the art style works so well for the game, I don't feel like it's losing a tremendous amount in terms of graphic mm. graphical prowess. I would argue that maybe Xenoblade is the most ambitious game ever put on a handheld. Uh, to many, yeah, I like so. it, that's that's the final thing I wanted to say was it's just great that it's on a handheld. Like it's so easy to pick up and play and lose yourself in it because it's just it's so nice and you can just like the Wii, ver- Wii version you can save anywhere um, and I mean I'm going to be playing this game probably a lot on the tube uh, going to and from work and just having the ability to just press home in the middle of a cutscene for example because some of those cutscenes you know 10 to 15 minutes I guess maybe not, we're not quite yeah long, they, but... they get longer don't worry <laughs> yeah no I'm sure they do and having the ability to just press home close the lid and go to work is just a great great way to play the game I feel um and it just works well on the portable so yeah i think that my 35 pounds is probably gonna gonna pay off in the end so yeah i've got an awful lot more to say about this game in the future but um yeah eight hours in so far um i'll see you in 70 hours time <laughs> yeah yeah indeed uh no it's, it's i'm i'm very happy that you've picked this up and you're going to get to experience it because and and I was kind of tweeting about this earlier. I'm trying to rationalize in my head whether I prefer Xenoblade or Persona because it is it is now this Sophie's choice where I I'm not sure I can pick between the two of them. It is it is that close. Uh but look, play both of those games because they are no doubt two of my favorite games ever. So, yep. And just uh, just rank your favorite games alphabetically. That's what I do. Yeah, oh right, yeah. Well, unfortunately, that means Xenoblade comes uh, yeah, somewhat well, uh, close to the end. But well, At, least, at you know. least you know it's because it starts with an X. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if you, if you own a new 3DS, I think this is a must-buy, um, honestly. It's, it's that good so far, at least. Awesome. Well, uh, I think we have chatted a lot about these video games, uh, so what do you say we get out of here to the next segment? Uh, join us uh, after our short break, where we will be discussing the DS and everything to do with the DS. So we'll see you guys in a bit.
Alright everyone, welcome back to the second half of the show, uh, and in this segment we are going to talk about the DS uh, and kind of look at it from a retrospective perspective, but uh, before we do that we actually have an email that is uh, somewhat relevant, uh, so we're going to read that out first, uh, and Bali, uh, before you read the email, tell people where they can send emails uh, to our very lovely podcast here. Send all your emails to thisnintendolife at gmail.com. We always need more, and we'll definitely get to them all. So, yeah, send it in, send it in. We need them all the time. So we have an email from Daniel Bunzelmeyer. Hello, it's me once again, writing from the tropical oasis at, known as St. Louis, Missouri, and I have a question for you. I usually make a ridiculously long email, but this time I really just need this one thing answered. As a, as a, sorry, as I suspect a large portion of Club Nintendo users do as well. I have 870 coins, so what should I spend them on? Let's just assume I haven't played any of the games. I'm platinum level, so that gift will probably be a question for another day. But for now, I'd really like to know what you guys would recommend for purchase with my coins. I don't have a Wii U. I know, I know, for shame. So these suggestions should be 3DS only. Which of the 3DS titles would you recommend, or are there a lot of good virtual console options? For the sake of the other listeners that do, however, what um, are your suggestions for the Wii U titles too? You guys are the best. Keep the awesome podcast going, and I'll keep listening. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. Always providing great questions for us. Uh, and this week, of course, we have John on the show. Uh, he's from America, or so they say. Uh, and so this is kind of much more relevant to to uh, that region. Uh, unfortunately, in, in Europe, we don't have access to the same kind of catalog. I think they now have added some digital games, but it's definitely a, a more meager offering. Um, so, John, what are, what are some recommendations you would say from the uh, options we have for Club Nintendo? Well, do you want to start with the uh, the platinum gifts, or should we just? Uh, let's just let's start with the the normal stuff, and then have a look at the platinum stuff. Okay, so he's got a 3ds only. So yeah, uh, if we're assuming any, what he said, uh, 870 coins. Yeah, yeah. So if we're assuming um, 3ds only, and with that, with those coins to pick from, um, I think the best one of the bunch is probably Super Mario 3D Land. I think uh, it, you probably get the most out of it as well because you do get the. Um, my phone's ringing. God damn it! That's all right. Go ahead. Um, you, I think you get the most out of it in terms of replay value because you have like that the second Luigi quest that unlocks once you're done with it, and uh, you can go through all the levels again with uh, with some differences to it. So I think that one's the most bang for your buck. Um, but if you're going, if you want to go for quantity over the the best game if you want to try to use up all of your coins uh going with a few of the smaller ones is also an option um super mario land 2 six golden coins is excellent um the legend of zelda Link's awakening dx is a no-brainer that's one that you know if, if you were doing if you have 870 coins and you want to do super mario 3d land you still have enough left over for Link's Awakening DX, which is a fantastic game, and that one should be part of the equation no matter which uh, set you're going with. Other than that, I mean, there's the the Dylan's Rolling Western games, which yeah. I actually... Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I, I've i heard lots of very mixed things on Dylan's Rolling Western. 
Um, and it, it's actually one of the rewards in the European Club Nintendo at a stupidly, ridiculously overpriced 5,000 stars. We, our our um, catalogue is kind of uh, different, where like the value is much higher generally, so 5,000 isn't like stupidly ridiculous, but it is still way higher than a lot of other games, and it doesn't really make much sense, but... And you're trying to get enough codes to get um, Link's Awakening at the moment, MBZ, aren't you? Right, yeah, I I might be able to get a copy of Link's Awakening if I get one more uh, European code. (laughs) Shout outs, uh, shout outs. Yeah, if you have any, send them to me on Twitter, plug, so there you go. (laughs) So yeah, the the Rolling Western games are an option. I actually downloaded Last Ranger because I pretty much had um, a lot of the other ones that I wanted. Um, Harmonite is actually a really cool Oh, right, yeah, that's something that I've been uh, trying to look and pick up at some point on a sale. I don't think it has gone on sale anytime recently, but uh, I'm keeping an eye on Harmonite. Uh, that's one that's very interesting to me. So. Yeah, that one's also very cool. Uh, if we're just jumping over to the Wii U side, um, uh, again, if you're going for just uh, the, the best experience that you can have with a full-fledged Wii U game, as I shuffle through just trying to find where, where they keep the full games here, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of virtual console stuff. I think the, the big... Um, one was Wonderful 101, which is a game mm. that has a really high barrier of entry. But if you're willing to put some work into it, it's something that uh, a lot of people have gotten a lot out of. Yeah, that's and that's definitely one that I don't think many people have picked up. So it's probably unlikely uh, that you know majority of Wii U owners even own Wonderful 101. So uh, it's a good pick. I did there, enjoy definitely. the demo, though. I, I was interested in that a while ago. Yeah. That's cool. You know, if uh, the other like full uh, Wii U games, I mean, there's Game and Wario, which I didn't get much yeah. out of that game. That's. Uh... I really like the patchwork puzzles, but other than that, not uh, not for me. Game and Wario is the sort of thing that I expected to be a ten dollar download, and it ended up being a full game, uh, which you know is. Uh, I, just, uh, I I just would prefer a full-blown warrior wear, honestly, as opposed to that stuff. But, yeah, it, it did come out at a budget price originally over here, which was kind of cool. And it was it was also in between, like, uh, New Super Luigi and, like, Wonderful 101 was the next thing coming out. So I bought it because of a lack of options. And, right. yeah, I haven't spent too much time with it. Yeah. But if you're going for, like, a, a smaller – if you're going for a quantity – uh, there's a bunch of virtual console stuff to pick from, a lot of NES stuff, but Golden Sun is a really fantastic GBA game. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm looking to hop on that one pretty soon on Wii U Virtual Console, so good pick. Earthbound as well, if you want to stay on the RPG train. That one's a, a really uh, quirky RPG um, with a lot of interesting things to offer. It's not always the most um, friendly of RPGs when it comes to uh, the uh, the just the, the, the user interface isn't the right word, but uh, getting like starting the game uh, takes some dedication. There's some grinding involved. It's it's not uh, a, a very warm, pleasant experience uh, to begin off. So you, you gotta put uh, you gotta put some time into it. Um, and then you got uh, classics like Super Metroid and the always excellent Super Mario World. It's a mm, fantastic yeah. game. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. Super so, yeah, Metroid's I think, better, but yeah. <laughs> right. I think there are good picks there. Um, 
Daniel was talking about the Platinum Rewards on his email as well and saying that's a question for another day. But at the time he sent this email, the Platinum Rewards weren't out yet. Uh, so we can actually talk about those. Uh, what what are some good picks from the Platinum? I think the one that I saw that caught my eye is probably Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze yeah, uh, on yes. Wii, the Wii U side of things. But he's obviously looking for 3DS. So uh, uh, what do you think on, on that end? Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with Tropical Freeze for a, a Wii U pick. Actually, when um, something that we do every year on the Nintendo show... I'll shamelessly plug. Um, yes, go ahead. Is that uh, at at the at the end of every year we do a sort of award show, but like every game that we can think of that got released gets some sort of award. Oh, and I see. It's it's usually a lot of bullshit. Like, hey, Kirby game participation award. Thanks for showing up. Um, <laughs> but Tropical Freeze got my award for if you only had sixty dollars to spend on one game in twenty fourteen. That was the game, and that was the the year that we got Mario Kart Seven and Smash Brothers games that have a lot of depth to them. But that's how much I like Tropical Freeze because that was the for me the most satisfying experience playing it from start to finish, one hundred percent. But on the three DS side of things, uh, New Super Mario Brothers Two is an option. Um, mm, that's that's one that I would not recommend personally. Uh, but it is I. I I don't think it's a bad game. I just think it's it's a very by the numbers sequel, uh, New Super Mario Brothers two. Um, there's certainly some cool stuff in there, but it's it kind of feels soulless. Uh, and that probably has to do with like it being the B squad for for right, Mario. Right, right. It, it was kind of the, the younger developers, and you know they they weren't as experienced. But um, it's uh, it's an option. There's also games Mario Kart Seven is probably the one I'm going to go with because I haven't uh, gotten that one yet, and I can get it for free. It was pretty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Also, Ultimate NES Remix, if you're interested in playing that one. Yeah, that's both games on the 3DS, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, package. which, uh, funnily enough, you can also get NES Remix 2 as a Platinum Reward on your Wii U. Yeah. I think they offer, like, NES Remix 1 on a previous Platinum Reward. But then, you know, then after that, you're getting into a lot of virtual console stuff uh, that you can also get as a gold member. Uh, Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons are really great. I really like Oracle of Ages, um, but I, I don't know. It, it, I think it's hard to justify a little virtual console game that'll cost you five dollars. Uh, right, absolutely. When you're stacking that up against the likes of Tropical Freeze and you know Animal Crossing or whatever else there is, it's yeah, doesn't make sense. Unless of course you're a gold uh, reward holder. Uh, platinum people shouldn't be going for those uh, in any sense. Um, but yeah, uh, so that's uh, that's that. Good picks there, and I'm glad we got to that email finally. Um, but I think we're going to move on now into our discussion about the Nintendo DS. Uh, so the DS is it's a very special console uh, in many ways. It was really unique when it was first announced, and the initial reveal happened, I believe, at E3. It was kind of foreshadowed before that. They released the name, and they said it's going to be this brand new system with two screens, and that's really all we knew about it. At the time, in the official Nintendo magazine, um, I remember them trying to do, like, some mock-up screenshots, or they had, like, uh, this this kind of blacked-out image with a question mark inside it, like, what is DS? And everyone was speculating. Uh, and that's kind of the first... Uh, time that I heard about it. Uh, what was it like for you, John, uh, in terms of, you know, pre-release uh, and stuff uh, going into the DS? Uh, pre-release, you know, like you said, just uh, just a big mystery. I remember thinking that, like, oh my god, you're, you're announcing another system. The GBA is barely three years old. Um, and they, they kind of, 
I don't remember if it was exactly at that E3 or if it was a little bit later that they started talking of it as a sort of third pillar. That this, right. This... The third pillar was uh, very much in the equation there. It's, it's, it's like they didn't want to bet the farm on this new system, and they always had the Game Boy name to fall back on, so that if DS didn't do well, they could just you know brush it off as a crazy wacko idea that they had as a you know a, a potential boy. extra. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It could have been a Virtual Boy situation. Um, yeah. And now they... that so now they didn't have gunpay to shame into retirement again exactly like yeah unfortunately something else maybe. yeah yeah um but absolutely it was it was certainly a very it, it wasn't very um affirmative that uh, it's like this is the successor it's like oh, we're putting this thing out there we'll see how it does of course ds now the best-selling video game hardware of all time i think just about eclipses the PS2, but uh, back then, uh, very foggy waters. Um, so, uh, yeah, but Bali, what were your impressions at the time? You know, obviously both of us were you know, friends back then. We were talking about this stuff. Uh, how excited were you for DS? It was it was kind of uncontrollable how excited um, I was, actually. It was, it was very embarrassing, to be honest, because we, we, I just remember reading um, Nom back in the day and just the screenshots of games like I don't know Harvest Moon, um, WarioWare, Touched, just screenshots of those games, and obviously the Mario sixty four um, uh, re release, uh, just unbelievably hyped to to because it was so much better looking than the Game Boy Advance. I think the combination of that and knowing that there was this touch screen. Uh, and obviously the dual screens. It was it was just going to be this completely new way of playing um, games, and I think I was just so hyped in, in many of the same ways I was hyped for the Wii, and just finally holding it in my hands and trying out all these new um, new ways of playing games that like Nintendo just decided right we're going to move away from the Game Boy Advance and we're going to come up with these new ways to play. And I just I just was dying to see what that was going to be like. Yeah, we we should really remember that this is an age and era before smartphones, before tablets, before touchscreen gaming was a mainstream thing. Nintendo were doing something very strange and crazy, and uh, in the end, I'm, I'm sure that you know they were very glad they did it because it worked tremendously. But um, it was it was a kind of time of possibility and exciting things that you know what are they going to do with this system and how is this going to work between the two screens there were lots of cool features to it and another another big thing about it was it, they announced that it had wi-fi and i think this was something that i kind of underestimated throughout the ds's life cycle but the fact that it was online and that you could play games online was a huge deal and honestly if that hadn't been in there I probably wouldn't be sitting here doing this podcast right now because of the the route that it led me down doing Pokemon and making a YouTube channel and you know building up an audience and you know doing you know talking about this stuff right now so I think that can't really be underestimated um I do remember though at E3 that year the design of the DS was very different to what it actually came out uh at retail do you do you guys remember what it looked like because it was a little bit uh, of a different skew and I actually preferred the E3 version that they showed as opposed to the, the fat that did launch eventually yeah it was more um there wasn't like an edge to the screen necessarily yeah it felt more soft on the edges yeah the bit of plastic that sort of went over the bottom screen and the top screen was much larger than it ended up being i seem Mm. to remember yeah so 
I don't know that uh, that was one thing I was a little disappointed at, but um, we did eventually get to the launch of the system, which uh, had some had some good games. Um, nothing kind of mind blowing, but at the time I had never played Mario sixty four before. Um, I'd had experience, uh, you know, going through it at friends' houses, but I'd never like fully immersed myself. And I I actually never owned an N sixty four. Bali, you did, but I don't think you did play Mario sixty four. No, I never. I I only owned Mario sixty four. Um years and years and years later um, because I actually found it at school um, it was like just it was in a it was in a uh, common room that was getting cleared out and no one was claiming it so I took it basically <laughs> just stole, <laughs> um, stole the video um, game yeah but I've never actually played played that version um, so yeah Mario 64 was completely new for me with the DS launch as well mm. um what were the games you were looking forward to, John, then? I'm assuming that you would have played Mario 64 before uh, this system came out. Yes, indeed. Um, there wasn't really a particular game that I was looking forward to that I was aware of when it launched. Um, it, it launched in uh, 2004, in November 2004 in North America. But that's right, okay. Yeah. I mean, for the purpose of this conversation, um, nobody gave a shit in North America about the DS until 2005. So right. it all works out. <laughs> Um, but I played a lot of Mario 64 DS, which is uh, a game that I played many times before. Uh, after that, it wasn't until about June um, that I picked up Kirby Canvas Curse. And I, I, I probably I, I wasn't even fully aware of that game until a few months after uh, or before it, it yeah. came out. I think a lot of people herald Canvas Curse as the real beginning of the DS's life. You know, that was the game yeah. that uh, came through on the promise of touchscreens and came through on the, the promise of, like, this innovative new thing. Uh, it was fresh, it was cool, and it worked. And, yeah, and a lot uh, of the games before that, uh, Yoshi Touch and Go and mm. uh, fucking Pack Picks. Um, right. I, I was actually really excited for Pack Picks, kind of in a weird <laughs> way. I never ended up buying the game, but... It was. It just seemed such a cool idea that your drawings would come to life, and I was really fixated on that because I always saw these screenshots, and I was like, "Wow! Like you can draw a thing, and it'll start moving of its own free will. That's crazy." Uh, of course, it turned out to be very shallow and probably a pretty terrible video game, but um, I don't know. It was. A, it was a promise there. There were a few of those sort of shallow experiences where you know when they were coming out, one of the, the general. Uh, views of those type of games. I was like, well, well, look at the potential of this system. Look at what you know, innovative things that you can do with a touchscreen, and we're going to see those in more full-fledged games. I, I think the final uh, irony, if I'm allowed to misuse that word again, um, is that probably the the best experiences on the DS were games that didn't innovate on the touchscreen, or even use the touchscreen at times, or it was just like a, a, a map or something. And that's one of the, the beautiful things about the DS is that it struck that balance between um, innovation and traditional experiences so incredibly well. Yeah, it was it was kind of this magical thing. Um, I'm going to rewind a little bit before we get into the, the games and talking about that. Um, I want to talk about launch stories uh, and uh, what went on when you were buying the game. Uh, sorry, the system. Uh, so, Bali, why don't we start with you? Uh, what is uh, your launch story for the DS? I picked it up with the on launch day. Um, I think I just went to game and got one. Um, actually, and, <laughs> a little boring, I, yeah, I have to say. Quite uh, boring, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I got it with the Metroid uh, Hunters. 
Metroid Hunters demo. Prime Hunters, uh, yes. Prime Hunters, yeah. And I picked up Mario 64 DS and WarioWare Touched. Um, and I remember meeting up with you, I think, the first weekend after it was out. And we were testing all the features, playing... Um, Mario 64 multiplayer? I think it did, yeah. Yeah, it actually, had that yeah. weird multiplayer mode where you had to basically go after stars and like jump yeah. on each other's heads and stuff and stop each other. And so we did, did some it, of that. Did it have multiplayer on the minigames? Or did they... I think they might have saved that until New Super Mario Brothers for the multiplayer. They did. What they did do, I think, like, remember the slide secret level in Mario 64? That yeah. was part of the multiplayer. You could race yeah. against each other down yeah. that slide. Um, and yeah, those minigames, I don't remember if they were multiplayer or not. Um, yeah, I, I have a feeling they weren't until Mario, uh, uh, new Super Mario Brothers. Right. Yeah, I that's probably when they started. Um, but yeah, no, I was I was going to say, and we probably have a, a whole segment of stories about um, uh, Picto chat and in, in the right, itself. Yes. But I remember <laughs> going to the park opposite your house mm-hmm. the the weekend uh, that it came out, and we went to the opposite ends of the park just to see if Picto Chat would work. And we yeah, we're both standing like... two corners across yeah. like five, six hundred metres and making oh, sure yeah, it was a lot the less distance. Than five, six hundred metres, I'd say. I, I don't know. That park's quite big. You um, think? I'd say it was on a, on a diagonal. On a diagonal. Two hundred metres. Well, it, look, it was a it was a big distance. It was a big look, distance. We've got to hammer up. Uh, it, it, worked. it worked. It worked. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that was that was an interesting one. But yeah, no, I. I I've not got many exciting launch stories, I'm afraid. That's fine. What about you, John? Were you uh, camping out uh, at midnight to try and get your hands on a system? No, I actually did not pick one up at launch. At the time, I I got one a couple months after launch. At the time, I was working at a Blockbuster, specifically at um, Blockbuster's game division, which went defunct shortly after, you know, it was was (laughs) conceived. Um, but there was a, a pretty regular customer who picked one up at launch, and not to, like not a day or two after he bought it, he came back and he traded it in. And I was like, "What? What are you fucking idiot? This is a brand." Like, <laughs> he, he's like, "Well, there's there's no games that I want to play. Of course, there's no games you want to play. It's a fucking launch of a system. There's." There's never any games at the launch of a system. He's like, oh, I'm going to trade it anyway. If I, if I want one again, I'll just pick it up later. I'm like, all right. And at the time, there was a, I don't know how it works in the, the game trading industry now, but at the time, there was a, a 30-day wait period between where something got traded in and where the stores were allowed to sell it. And it was a, um, a, a theft prevention sort of thing. So if somebody uh, were to like rip off a GameStop and then go and trade all of their stuff in for credit at another store... Um, the, the, the sort of product would be able to be tracked and held and not resold to, uh, so it could be used as evidence, which, of course, never fucking happened. But um, after 30 days of it being, you know, it, with, within the little holding locker, uh, it, it went uh, onto the display shelf as a used unit, although very lightly used, and I went ahead and bought that. With uh, the and it still had the demo for Metroid Prime Hunters, which I, I played a couple of times and then never put myself through that again. And Mario Mario sixty four DS, which I played quite a bit. I've played it from from start to finish. Got all of the stars. Um, played as all of the different characters that you can play on play as in that game. Um, tried it using the uh, 
stylus controls, which were mm, bullshit. Yeah, I remember that was a big thing, and they were actually pushing uh, the wrist strap to yes. uh, with your thumb. Uh, yes. If you remember that, um, yeah, I do remember. It. I remember that bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, how, it, how it didn't work. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, like the, the next system with 3DS, they got sense and put a, an analog uh, control scheme in there, but. Uh, D pad or bust for me. I was not using that stylus control. No way. Oh yeah, that was the, a bit crazy. The D pad was the lesser of all evils. But you know, yeah. At, yeah. at the time, you know, the, the D pad is not ideal for controlling that type of game. But at the right, time, especially Mario sixty four, which was a game that they designed the analog stick around, which is kind of crazy, you know. Um, but you know, at, at the time, it was like I, I don't care. I'm playing Mario sixty four with updated visuals, and it's on a portable system. This is cool. Yeah, it's it certainly played fine for me. I I don't recall having too many troubles with it, but um, yeah, it was uh, it was cool to to actually be able to play that. And I think something that I don't realize or think about that much is how cool it was to have a handheld with full blown 3D games on it. It's kind of like the transition from Super Nintendo to N64 in the handheld space because this was basically an N64 in terms of power output we'd never had a handheld console before that could output full 3D graphics and that was exciting to me pretty exciting so um, I was very stoked Um, as for my launch story I never owned Metro Prime Hunters and there's very good reason for that because you know obviously everyone uh, got it at launch because it was packed in I had my DS before many people in the UK did and very shortly after people in America did The reason for that is during the winter, uh, the Christmas break in 2004, uh, I was over in Dubai. Um, One of my uncles had basically moved over there for work and he'd invited the whole family to go to Dubai on holiday. And, you know, we went there and we had a great time and it was, you know, it's it's an awesome country to visit for like a week or so. I couldn't imagine living there, but it's a spectacle to be sure. Um, And we came across a supermarket, you know, just doing shopping, regular things. And out of nowhere, I spotted a cabinet which had some video game stuff in it. So naturally, I go over there, have a look. And inside the cabinet, they have a DS. Now, being someone knowledgeable at the time, I was reading, you know, Nintendo magazines. I knew about region locking, and I knew that the DS was region free. So I see this DS. I see it as a price that looks pretty reasonable. And I am losing my damn mind because I'm like 13 years old. This is a brand new video game system which isn't going to be out for another four months in my own country. And I have the opportunity right now to buy this and to have it before anyone else does. And that's what I did. I told my dad and he, you know, sorted it all out. We got the deal, got the DS. The only unfortunate thing was that they were selling no games. So I didn't have a DS game until launch in the UK, which (laughs) meant I was basically using it to play GBA stuff. But I didn't care. I had no qualms because I had this hardware. It was so fucking cool. And I showed Bali and Bali was insanely jealous, of course. Um, And... It was marvelous. So my launch story was pretty spectacular, and I am—I um, don't know—it's one of those things that I will always remember. Just in Dubai, suddenly seeing a DS and getting insanely excited about it. Um, I'm pretty sure the DS was a Japanese one. Uh, I think that they just imported them from the Japanese launch, and that's why it ha- they had it there. Um, so yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, be able to to go back home and 
kick down the doors of your classrooms like I have a DS none of you yeah. else have one yep. compare your lives to mine and kill yourself <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so the DS uh, had a pretty long life and it was very kind of varied in the way that uh, its iterations were put out um, obviously uh around 2006 I think was when they put out the DS Lite uh, and that was also a time at which they put out games like uh, Brain Training and Nintendogs and what they call the Touch Generation series which was this big push from Nintendo to kind of um, go for a blue ocean strategy uh, widen the market and go after you know as many different consumers as they possibly could eventually dovetailing into the Wii which did the exact same thing um, did you guys uh, pick up a DS Lite? Uh, and, you know, what what were your experiences with that system? Uh, I'm curious to know. Uh, so, John, how about we go with you? Oh, of course. Yeah, DS Lite was uh, a launch of the system upgrade for me. Uh, I did not trade in my standard DS, though. I actually hang on to, to that one, and it's no longer in my possession. I, I lent it to a friend who then went ahead and moved to uh, Kansas City like a jackass. Um, but yeah, the, the DS Lite was an instant upgrade for me, just smaller, lighter, the, the brighter screen. Yeah, it it was, it was such a great upgrade over the standard DS, which had, uh, had quite a bit of, quite a bit of heft to it. Yeah, it was a chunky, it was a chunky thing, that, that good old fat DS, um, it did its purpose, but it certainly was not aesthetically pleasing. And I think the DS Lite is perhaps one of the most well-designed and aesthetically pleasing systems Nintendo has ever put out, period. Like, it's such a, uh, a wonderful thing to look at, and um, it was great for marketing because it had that kind of Apple sheen to it. Um, and there's no wonder that people really took to the system. Uh, the thing about brightness is a, a big thing as well, and I remember very clearly, Bally, that you ha- had got a DS Lite before I did, and remembering putting the two alongside one another and comparing the brightness, and yeah. I was blown away. It was n- literally night and day, the difference. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, a friend of mine um, actually picked up the DS Lite. A friend of mine, Shaq, actually had one. Um, and he just had Mario Kart and he brought it into school. Brought it into school and was basically like, hey, Bally, come check this out. And I was just playing a GP on Mario Kart, just thinking, wow, this is such an upgrade. And I think I picked one up very soon after that. Um, and I seem to remember buying Monkey Ball at the time. Um, and just played a ton of that on um, the DS Lite. And uh, yeah, it was such a great upgrade. And I completely agree with you. I think if you lined up, even including the new 3DS, the 3DS, 3DS XL, the DSi, the DS Fat, I think if you lined up all like eight of those systems or however many there are, I still think the DS Lite is the best form factor out of the lot by quite a long way as well. Um, It was just such a great system. It also had squishy buttons, which is something Nintendo haven't gone back to. They uh, they've opted for you know the kind of more sturdy, hard. Squishy on Wii U. Yeah, but it's not the same kind of squishy as the DS Lite. I don't know. They had a is very that, kind of unique is. feeling to uh, to those buttons that I really enjoyed. Um, and so making the transition to 3DS was uh, a little jarring after that. But um, you know it. Uh, it was it yeah it was it was a fantastic system and I I did wait a while until I upgraded mine but when I did I I really never looked back. Um, I think there were some problems on the hardware end. Uh, you know in the long run for DS Lite I now have one which has a completely cracked hinge. Uh, I think that was a recurring issue for many people. Um, 
Bally, I don't think. Yeah, I think my my hinge was. cracked as well. It just yeah. did, but it didn't affect the system as drastically as yours. Um, yeah, I don't know about you, John, if you had any defects there, but uh, uh, no, my my hinges surprisingly stayed intact. Um, I, I did good. have to uh, send my DS Lite to repair one time because I would always keep it in my backpack, and I am apparently a filthy person because. Uh, my my shoulder buttons stopped working, and I sent uh, it back to Nintendo. That was another uh, default that a lot of people experienced, I think. So. Yeah. I'm going to stand by it. <laughs> um, I, I sent it back to Nintendo, and they said, "Oh, there's some sort of foreign substance in the shoulder, so we cleaned it out for you. Pay us ninety bucks." And I was like, "Fine." Oh. And 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 actually, they did offer me like upfront, like, "Hey, you know, this is how much it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost to clean it out. Um, we can just sell you a, a refurbished one." for that same price if you'd rather do that and I was like "Mm, no go ahead and fix it because at that point I mean I had spent hundreds of hours with the thing on like Advance Wars alone and I had so many games for it and me and that that DSLA man we had been through some shit so I wasn't willing to part ways with it so I went went ahead and had them fix it and you know a couple years after that it fucking did it again and I had (laughs) And I haven't I haven't fixed it yet, but I still have it. It's sitting in a drawer in my bedroom um, because it's it's just a, a really nostalgic system for me because I've spent so much time with it and played so many really great games with it. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of excellent stuff, um, and we will we'll get to talking about games in a bit. Uh, but the DS then kind of evolved after the light into uh, the DSi and the DSi XL. Now, neither Bally or I owned a DSi. I uh, picked it, uh, an XL up uh, quite a while later, you know, well into the 3DS's lifespan because my original DS Lite had kind of broken and I wanted a good place to play DS games. I wasn't a fan of how um, DS games looked on the 3DS. It's very blurry and kind of not super uh, nice but uh, so so I wanted a, a nice way to play it and that's why I got the XL um, the the this was Nintendo's first kind of experimentation with digital um, you know marketplaces on a handheld uh, with the DSi store uh, so I'm interested John did you have a DSi XL or a standard one and uh, you know what was your experience with DSiWare if any no actually I didn't uh, have a DSi um my first experience with a sort of Nintendo online shop was on the Wii and then on a, on a handheld, of course, with the eShop on the 3DS. But I actually did not upgrade um, my DS Lite until the 3DS came out. But since then, I, I've actually um, got to experiment a little bit with the DSiWare shop, which is garbage. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I, I actually found a DSi at a Walmart. I was like... Uh, in a Walmart, and I was like, I don't know, down like the, the breakfast cereal aisle or something, and there was an orange DSi just sitting on like the the Captain Crunch or whatever. And I looked up and down the aisle. There's a couple of there's a couple of people there. I look at the DS and I hold and I hold it up and say, "Did anyone lose a DS?" And of course, they all give me that glazed over look, like, "What are you talking about?" So I was like, "Okay, <laughs> this crazy guy. You no, know, no one's claiming it." This is now mine. So now I have an orange DSi, which it, it comes. It t- finds out that uh, it, that it was like a special edition system that they had a limited run of. It was like a, a Christmas system. They like released a green uh, special edition and an orange special edition DSi in North America for Christmas one year. Because when I think Christmas, I think orange. Right. <laughs> Me too. Doesn't. <laughs> But but there it is. I, I have this uh, this really cool orange DSi, which I actually use quite a bit still for nuzlocking purposes. 
Oh, oh excellent. Yeah, the the DSi uh, store was a weird thing. It wasn't... It still exists. It still exists, and it's this kind of weird relic to the point where even the Four Swords thing that you downloaded on 3DS has to be stored in the system memory instead of on the SD card of a 3DS system. It's Yeah, there's some weird architecture stuff that stayed around uh, from that era, um, and you know we can even still see today, but... Um, I don't know. It was it was a good experiment, and it was good for them to get it out of their system so that they could pave the ground for the eShop that came later. Um, and I think it was better for it, quite honestly. So yeah, uh, we are now going to transition to talking about some of our favorite games on the system. Um, and uh, you know, there were a lot of classics on DS, a lot of things that we maybe want to be released on the DS Virtual Console. Um, so how about we uh, kind of lump those two together? Uh, John, what games were your favorite that you played on the system overall, and uh, what would you like to see come to the DS Virtual Console? Uh, one of my favorites for the DS was Advance Wars Days of Ruin. And I think the, the popular opinion is that uh, Dual Strike is, is probably the more easily accessible game. But I really liked the, the tonal shift that went on with Days of Ruin. There was a lot more uh, missions where you only had X number of units and you had to figure out how to win. Um, and of course they did have the, the, unit, the, the missions where you could build a ton of units and just go all out against the enemy. But I think that it's, it's a much more scaled back version of Advance Wars, especially when compared to a Dual Strike, the first Advance Wars game on the DS, where there were neo-tanks and mega-tanks and these huge, really powerful units that if you, just, if you get, get a couple of them, you could just mow down uh, your enemy pretty easily. Uh, I feel like Days of Ruin achieved a much better balance with uh, the units, but also the CO powers. Uh, they, they definitely gave you an advantage in battle, but it didn't make... It, it wasn't like an overwhelming strike against the enemy. I remember in uh, Dual Strike, one of my favorite strategies was to play as Andy and Eagle, and when you fill up both of their their powers, their, their CO meter, you basically get three turns to go at the enemy because Eagle... Um, when you use his power, all of his vehicles can move again. So you basically move all of your planes and tanks, use his power, move all your planes and tanks again, switch over to Andy, who then repairs everything, and then get to move everything again. So really, really overpowering, and I think uh, Days of Ruin did a much better job of balancing things out. I'll go through some of these uh, rapid fire. Contra 4 is one of my favorites. Me and my friend who actually stole my DS played it a lot when we, well, at work when we shouldn't have been playing it. But uh, it was a really fun co-op experience. Captured a lot of the original Contra feel. Golden Sun Dark Dawn is one of my favorite RPGs on the system. Castlevania Dawn of, Dawn of Sorrow. Some really great 2D Castlevania games were on the DS. Dawn of Sorrow is probably my favorite of the group. And it's, it's really sad that those type of 2D Castlevania games just don't exist anymore. Uh, Professor, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Professor Layton, that's where the, the series started. Really fun puzzle game. I never thought that doing other people's math homework could be fun. One that I'm especially fond of is uh, Rocket Slime, Dragon Quest uh, Heroes Rocket Slime. That's a really fun little game, uh, a really cool adventure with these unique tank battles. Um and I've always been a little bit bitter at Square Enix for not bringing over the next Rocket Slime that's on the 3DS over to the west from Japan. Kirby Mass Attack, also one of my favorites. Bowser's Inside Story is probably my favorite Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga game. And then, of course, Pokemon Black and White, which is probably my favorite generation of Pokemon. Uh, it came out right at the tail end 
of the DS's life cycle, but definitely one of my favorite DS games. Yeah, the Pokemon games on DS were plenty. Uh, like, there were very, very many uh, versions, and I, I played pretty much all of them. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing with Pokemon when it comes to Virtual Console because they they still haven't released any Pokemon game, uh, you know, on Game Boy, uh, you know, the Gold or Silver or Red or Blue on the Game Boy Virtual Console. Um, I think that really has to do with the idea that they can't bring over the trading functionality and the battling functionality, the multiplayer that was you know such a big part of those games. And I think Nintendo, when they bring games to the Virtual Console, they want to have all the features or not at all. Although it's very ironic now that they have Mario Kart DS on the Virtual Console and that online is completely defunct. So, and that was, you know, that was a big thing about the game when they were yeah. like, hey, this is uh, Wi-Fi. You can play with other people across the world. Exactly. So that maybe gives me some hope that they will bring Pokemon games eventually, uh, but uh, I wouldn't hold my breath on those. I, they seem to prefer to just remaster those and make way more money on them anyway, so uh, that seems like a, a good thing there. Uh, Bali, how about you? What are some uh, some picks for you from the DS's library? I actually must say I am not very proud of my DS collection. It's not the best lineup of games, and there's certainly really great games in the DS uh, catalogue that I just missed out on for whatever reason. For example, like you were saying, John, I love Advance Wars, and I never even played the Advance Wars games on um, the DS, so I'm super excited for hopefully those two games to come out um, on the Virtual Console. Um my personal favourites are my number one has to be Kirby Canvas Curse um, we mentioned it before but it is just a fantastic game that really proves how a touchscreen can completely change the way you play a game and it was one of the, probably the first big game to do that and it just implemented it so well um, I absolutely love the two Zeldas that came out on the system, Phantom Hourglass has its issues in my opinion it's that uh Great Ocean King Temple that you keep coming back to is a bit of a nightmare, um, but I think Spirit Tracks really fixed all those issues and is a is a really great Zelda game. Um, I absolutely loved Mario Kart DS. I don't think it's aged the best. Like going back to it, it's not much fun, I'd say. But at the time, it was incredible. Completed all the missions with three stars. Loved it. Um, I was really big into, and I think you were to some degree as well. I mean, says Nintendogs at the time. Yeah, like, we, and we didn't kind of talk about the Touch Generations games too in depth, but we did really get into Nintendogs in a way that was perhaps kind of unhealthy. But I, I, yeah. I enjoyed my time with that system, uh, playing, you know, barking at it and telling the dog commands. Um, yeah, it, it and was the same- weird. For me, with like Big Brain Academy and bra- and Brain Training, like both of them were kind of those touch generation games that I would never really consider going back to at the moment. But at the time, they were just a great, great fun and a, a different way of playing games. It was and it worked well. It worked well. Um, I absolutely loved WarriorWare Touched. I think after Twisted. Um, that's probably the second best WarioWare for me. Um, so I've really enjoyed that. Um, but overall, loads of great games. Um, I missed out on loads, including Professor Layton, Phoenix Wright, that I definitely want to try on um, the Virtual Console when that comes, hopefully. Yeah, uh, and I hope that that has you know a long and healthy life with the many releases. Although, looking at uh, what they've released so far for the Wii, that may be uh, not the case. But Actually, we'll guys, hold out hope. Uh, yeah. Sorry sorry to interrupt, but the wife is home, and she's been texting me that she's a cranky baby, so I better bail out. 
Well, uh, before you go, John, uh, thank you, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Uh, oh, thanks so we'll much for having me. Um, plug your podcast. Uh, where can people go find it uh, if they want to hear more of you? I just search for the Nintendo Show on iTunes, and that'll take you right there. Um, also, if you want to send me a, a friend request on Meverse, uh, my Meverse, my, my Nintendo Network ID is Johnny Boy J O N N Y B O Y. So you can find me there as well. Excellent. I'll be doing that later and adding you there. And I'm sure many other people can do that. Um, so, yeah, thanks once again for joining us. Yeah, thanks. And, uh, thanks again, guys. It was really fun. No problem. Thanks. Uh, it's been great. All right. See ya. Till next time. All right. Uh, well, before we close things out, I'm going to talk a bit about my favorite DS games and uh, some classics that I would like to show up on the DS Virtual Console. Uh, personally, uh, obviously I've been playing through Castlevania games recently and uh, as soon as I uh, finish up the GBA versions that they have on the Virtual Console, I will jump into DS ones if Konami are so kind and release those. That would be fantastic. I would uh, be very thankful um, and would like to play those. Um, as for some of my favourites that I did play, um, Definitely Dragon Quest IX is one um, that opened me up to RPGs in a very big way. Um, I think it was, aside from Final Fantasy XIII, one of the first RPGs aside from Pokemon that I'd played. And it's really easy to get into. Um, it's definitely kind of the ground zero, I would say, for RPGs. It uh, has a lot of systems that are in many other games and is very easy to understand and get into. Uh, anyone can probably beat a Dragon Quest game. It just takes time and grinding um, but it's really fun it has such a cool aesthetic to it um, and is nice and long and uh, has a great anime style to it and yeah visually appealing Dragon Quest 9 is a great pick um, others would be Animal Crossing Wild World now we didn't really talk too much about yeah, uh, how much we played one. this but Animal Crossing was a huge game for me um, it was the first time I'd played the series gotten into those games um, and I really got hooked on it I loved Wild World so much we had so much fun yeah Bally we and had I. whole evenings talking on were we on Skype I can't remember just like walking around each other's towns swapping fruit doing general Animal Crossing stuff like when you look back on that game it's like you don't actually do anything substantive but when you put it all together it's just kind of an experience it's quite it's interesting it's a magical experience really uh, and that is the thing I think your first Animal Crossing is your favourite Animal Crossing and it's not something that can be replicated which is why I feel the latter games haven't struck me in the same way yeah. um, you know we both picked up the, the Wii, Wii version, version and oh neither dear, of us that was a mistake <laughs> yeah neither of us really spent any time with it um, because it was so similar and you started again with no furniture items or whatever and it's just building that all up again and we'd done it all before so it wasn't really it didn't feel like there was any need to do it and that, and that is a sort of concern that i would have if there was a potential wii u version yeah yeah it, it is one of those things i worry about but as it stands animal crossing wild world was a fantastic game and uh, i'm very glad that you know i had that experience with it um at the time so that's a big one um of course i echo your sentiments on the zelda games and on canvas curse um i actually would pick out marion luigi partners in time as well uh, a lot of people kind of shit on that game and say it's one of the worst in the series but it was my first marion luigi game i thought it was really cool and i never kind of played that style of uh you know 
very active RPG before, you know, you're very involved in the combat and dodging and jumping on enemies and getting the timing right. It's a really cool spin uh, on the genre, and I really enjoyed my time with it. I've still not played Bowser's Inside Story, um, but uh, I'm playing through Superstar Saga right now, as a playthrough on my YouTube channel, so, uh, you know, I'm sure I will uh, eventually get to the third entry, but uh, Partners in Time is a good pick. Uh, and... I think, you know, we, we've got to talk about Phoenix Wright. Uh, the first Phoenix Wright was the game that introduced me to the wonderful series that that is, and I've pretty much played most of the subsequent ones, um, and certainly something that you should uh, eventually dip into, Bally, uh, and I know that you are eventually going to maybe uh, try that series out, but um, that's, that's a great starting point. Um, and, yeah, I think, uh, you know, aside from the old quirks like Metroid Prime Pinball, uh, which is an old favorite of mine and one of those games that my dad is better at than I am, uh, the rare occasion because he is a pinball wizard. When that happens once in a blue moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, but he, he, he really enjoyed that game and I enjoyed, you know, playing it and watching him play it because he was so good at it and, like, really unlocked a lot of the stuff uh, in the game for me. So <laughs> it was uh, kind of a great situation Thanks, there. Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good fun time. Um, yeah, the DS was great. I think it had very many kind of blue ocean casual titles, and it then had some very My hardcore... collection had all of them. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but it, the thing about the DS was it actually had a really rich lineup of third parties, and seemingly it was the last time Nintendo had... A, a breadth of content coming from other companies on their system. Um, the 3DS does have some support, but not a huge amount. The DS, I think, is still like the last bastion of where you have uh, a lot of different games from different publishers and different ideas being thrown out there. Um, and that's why it's so rich a library, because you're not just kind of crutching on Nintendo's first-party stuff. There are so many other games out there and available, and uh, it really is a, a stellar system in general, and one that I uh, will cherish for a very long time to come. Uh, many DS games that I'm going back to. I should mention, I actually have started on Chrono Trigger on DS, which is my next big RPG project, and uh, that is going to be a fun time, so I'm looking forward to playing through that. But um, I think that pretty much closes us out here for this feature topic discussion. Uh, let's close out the show, Bally, shall we? Uh, so once again I'm going to uh, plug John's uh, podcast which you can go and check out on iTunes it is called The Ninten Show that's N-I-N-T-E-N-S-H-O-W uh, you should find it pretty easily um, on podcasting services of choice um, and yeah I'd recommend you give it a listen uh, he's a great guy and we're very happy to have him on the show our first guest uh, and uh, good stuff there uh, you can also find us on the internet in many places. So, Bali, why don't you tell people about Twitter and how that's a great place to go? It is a fantastic place to go. And there is one account that is incredibly important that you should all give a follow to. And that is not me or MBZ's account. It's actually the podcast's account. So we have a, we have a new account, as you may know, and it is at TNL Podcast. That's at TNL podcast so go check it out and it's the best place to go to get updates on everything so for example the last couple of weeks we did we've done a couple of videos on MBZ's YouTube channel and if you want to if you want to go somewhere that gives you an over, overall updates on everything that in terms of video content that we might do and obviously the podcast it's the best place that encapsulates all of those together so make sure you go check that out and 
give it a follow. Um, and then if you want, you can also follow me. I'm at Ballyman91. That's B-A-L-L-Y-M-A-N-9-1. And that's the same on Meverse for you. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Follow me on Meverse. I'll be posting plenty of Xenoblade vistas that look beautiful and jaw-droppingly stunning, um, but they are a little bit pixelated, so... But they're still great. Still but great. they're, they're still great. amazing. Still amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can uh, find me on Twitter as well. I'm at LordNBZ. LordNBZ on the Meverse. Uh, you can email us, which uh, we got to one email this show, but we need plenty more. We will be returning to emails next time. So send all of those to our email address, which is Bally. This Nintendo Life at gmail.com. Absolutely. Uh, we also should tell you that we heard your concerns. There were some people asking for different platforms for the show to be on. So, of course, you can always find us on iTunes. The best way to you know find the show, subscribe to it. You'll get it every week. And also, if you have the time, review us there. That's really important. Uh, we've had some great reviews from people. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have them up at the moment. Uh, but we will next week uh, be telling you all about those fantastic people who reviewed us so if you haven't reviewed us yet there's still time to go ahead and do that and uh, we will be uh, thanking you on the show next time so uh, do uh, head on over to the iTunes store Uh, but uh, getting off that tangent we are now on SoundCloud so you can find us uh, if you search for This Nintendo Life on SoundCloud we are also now on Stitcher Stitcher is uh, I think a radio podcast app and uh, we have been submitted and accepted on Stitcher so you can find us by searching this Nintendo Life on that platform as well. Uh, we're everywhere, Bally. We're literally taking over the podcast world. I'll tell you what. Speed of light. Absolutely. Um, and that is pretty much it. I don't think there's anything else to mention unless you have anything, Bally, uh, to close the show. Um, yeah. Hopefully have some more guests in the future. Yeah, that was great really fun. Great. It's um, good fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, um, everyone gets a bit sick of our British voices. Yeah. You know, we've got to throw in the Americans every now and then. Absolutely. So uh, look forward to more of that in the future. But for now, thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. interlude used in today's show was A Corner of Memories from Persona 4 Golden, copyright 2012, Atlas.